Steph and you're listening to The Thirst you can find us online Twitter we're at The Thirst Facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod Instagram we're at The Thirst Pod we're on SoundCloud.com forward slash The Thirst Pod you can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst and we're also on lots of other streaming podcast type platforms platforms, including Spotify you can find us again by searching for The Thirst if you want to email us you can do so it's thethirstpod at gmail.com it's episode 36 36 36 crazy fists 36 crazy fists I feel like we've been waiting on that one for a long time it's been in my head what else have you got uh, I've got 36 Degrees by Placebo which oh, is from their debut album Good love choice. a bit of Brian Mulco um, so much did you know that 36 is the number of degrees in the interior angle of each tip of a regular pentagram no just completely phased out there but you said pentagram so that's Thanks I guess that's quite so interesting so much Wikipedia Wiki um, yeah Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers yeah 36 well. by System of a Downs on Steal This Album classic um, who have you got with regards to people being 36 years oh, old I'm glad you knew I was going to do this the age of my second favourite Australian Chris Hemsworth behind Bond obviously yep. had to be careful with that then I was just mainly amused that Anne Hathaway's only 36 oh I was surprised that she was 36 I so. thought she's like 45 interesting she's been around forever old um andrew garfield also 36 oh is he yeah i saw andrew garfield did i was he the one who was in that exorcist play that i saw uh i don't think so hang on i'm gonna do a google carry on who uh, else have we got greta gerwig yes greta gerwig is 36 our friend mclemore is 36 is he yep oh god i tell you what it wasn't andrew garfield anyway who was it? i don't know i honestly <laughs> can't remember april sure I'll find out um, it was also things that are 36 return of the jedi and scarface oh my god really yeah wow i didn't know that time it passes flat circle great i've just realized that at the top of this news i've still got written news there is no news from when we were going to record news, the other day news, there is no news and there was no news it but... was so hard to find any fucking news the other week i'm glad we didn't do it because everyone would have been really bored we, we just had halloween and then and then we realized that that wasn't very interesting so... it was just like kooky halloween costumes mm, i love halloween costumes but also it's been a dry month for news dry really dry so some news most importantly we broke 15,000 listens so thanks so much congrats thanks so much well done you all you standalone peeps that's Um, 15,000 individual people who listened once and then gave up and then were like not for me nope Um, another thing that I would like to talk about is that Variety has announced the lineup for its annual Actors on Actors series yes very exciting. Um, so this is a partnership it does with PBS. It'll be, I think it's season 11. Mm-hmm. The episodes will be on PBS in the States in January, but um, I've... That basically means nothing to us. Yeah, I it? didn't actually realise until I read the article from Variety that they actually are on television, because obviously we watch mm. them on YouTube. Yeah. So I always like, just thought they were like, a YouTube oh. series. Yeah, so it says like January 2nd starting at 8pm. Like imagine just watching them Tuning on television. into television Ooh. over dinner to watch Actors on Actors. Um, just not a thing anymore. I love the Actors on Actors series because it always pairs sort of either really amazing people together or absolutely random mix. My favourite one from last year was, I think it was Margot Robbie and Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes. Beautiful That was people. pretty good. We got Timmy and Emma Stone last year. We did get that Timmy and Emma Stone. That was pretty good. There were some nice ones. Yeah, this is a mixed bag. There's some that you just like... Yeah, I mean, I think generally they're strong pairings. Yeah. But there's a few that you're like, like, that's a safe pairing. And then there's a few that you're like, wow. The chaotic ones. Chaotic as fuck. So the pretty standard ones are, so Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, good. 
fine. Standard. They've worked together before, Lovely. so it'll be a nice time. Fine. Um, I'm right, I imagine that Laura Dern and Sterling K. Brown will be very interesting Very interesting. Adam Driver and Charlize Theron. Like, fine. I mean, who wouldn't want to watch that? Yeah. Lovely. Beanie Feldstein and Florence Pugh will be nice because I imagine there's lots of Greta Gerwig over I'm very there. excited to listen to that. Listen yeah. slash watch. I think that will be lovely. This is where it starts to get funny. Jennifer Lopez and Robert Pattinson. This is the best one. He's going to be... Truly, this is the best one out of all of them. Do you think that he's just going to say weird stuff? What on earth have they got in common? J-Lo and R-Pat. I don't know. Being beautiful. Nice hair. Like, what's Jenny from the block and Edward Cullen? Like, what are they going to talk about? Maybe she's a big Twilight fan. I hope he's really weird and she just feels super awkward about it. You know who else is going to be weird and awkward? Go on. Um, Shia LaBeouf and Kristen Stewart. Super, super weird and awkward, but also really looking forward to that one. Chaotic sexual energy. I feel like those have been specifically chosen for us because they're things that we would be very interested in. One that I'm really interested in that I feel like you're absolutely probably slightly on the fence about is the Brad Pitt and Adam Sandler one. Yes, we all know how I feel about Adam Sandler. Everyone's trying to force me to like... I am pumped. Everyone's telling me... Basically, that I need to be on the Adam Sandler train once Uncut Gems comes out. We'll see. Maybe I will be. Prior to that film coming out, though, Adam Sandler means absolutely nothing to me. This podcast is going to be so funny when Uncut Gems finally comes out and we have to do an Uncut Gems segment and I'm going to be absolutely insufferable and you're potentially just going to be really annoyed about Adam Sandler. I might really like it and decide that he's really good as a serious think, actor, but he's also like Will Ferrell and I don't give a shit about Well, this about is my worry is that it's going to be... But I mean, I think the idea of Brad Pitt and Adam Sandler having a nice chat, I did text you and say... I. I I hope they mention Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm sure they will. I just think like Adam Sandler cannot touch Brad Pitt and maybe it's just because they're like an odd pairing. Maybe it's just because they're like of a similar age. Yeah, they're just like two middle-aged men. What about Antonio Banderas and Eddie Murphy? Random. I cut loads of those out of the list because I I just highlighted the ones I cared about. Just ones that are in, yeah, like Tom Hanks with Renee Zellweger. Fine. Fine. That's like a safe um, bet. I imagine the Aquafina and Taron Egerton will be quite nice. Yeah, I think so. Taron Egerton, our friend. But mainly, I think Brad and Adam are pretty weird. Shia and Kristen will be good fun. And J-Lo and Rob Pattinson is just a blinder. I think the Shire Shire and Kristen one is going to be the one that I enjoy looking at the most. I think it would be great. Well, they're not going to... Like, how deep are they going to go, really? Because neither of them like to talk about anything private at all, really. So, I don't know. Shia likes airing his, like... Smelly laundry. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll talk about these when they I'm come sure out will. in the new year. Um, just a visual feast f- for us all. Um, on to other things. This week, Keanu Reeves stepped out with his age-appropriate girlfriend and the entire internet lost its mind because apparently this is unusual in 2019. The bar is so low. The bar is so low. So the fact that the internet actually gets excited about this shows just how far 2019 has gone down the toilet it is essentially man steps out with a woman so Keanu Reeves has seemingly confirmed that he's in a relationship with LA-based artist Alexandra Grant Uh, they appeared together holding hands on the red carpet at the LACMA art and film gala which prompted lots of support from people saying support 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 is the oddest word yeah lots of positive reactions and praising the actor for bucking the Hollywood trend and dating a quote age-appropriate girlfriend she's nine Um, years younger than him though i know this is the thing though because it's 
I find it truly amazing that people like amazing that everyone was just going oh my god can't believe this what an amazing guy like I'm not saying that Keanu isn't a great guy and he isn't deserving of our appreciation but as you say the bar is really fucking low if this is what we it's have just made me so for. bummed out but then the fact that people were highlighting the nine year age gap because he's 55 and she's 46 as if that's like an inappropriate age it's, gap it's just so funny like, uh, but there's still an age gap yes but 46 and 55 don't fucking matter do they at least like, it's not a, like a Leo and his girlfriend and there's like just, a girl opposite ends of the spectrum like yes you can date someone who's 10 years apart from you when you're in your 50s that's fine they're legally allowed to like yeah they've been out of nappies for like more than three years that's i think the thing that i liked about this the most is that he just seems very happy and he's had a very he's notoriously quite private and never really discusses his his sort of personal life and he's had sort of it's been a while since he's stepped out with someone on the red carpet i mean it was funny that it got picked up at this particular event because they had been spotted on the red carpet earlier this year in may and then they also went to the yves saint laurent men's spring summer yeah they've had and and they've got a long-standing like you know relationship they work together they've got a publishing company together she's illustrated two of his books like they you know they've been around each other forever it's probably not a stretch that they've been dating for a while so it is funny that everyone's just suddenly lost their minds and also the fact that people were being so fucking patronising about it by saying like god you know it's just so nice that he's dating someone with grey hair isn't it funny <laughs> fuck you guys I also enjoyed that dating someone who's like normal right like, I also enjoyed that people kept, guys. kept confusing her with Helen Mirren yeah I can see the resemblance they're women with grey hair <laughs> they are women with grey hair basically older women with grey hair Helen Mirren said in response actually to uh, being asked about this quote that was very flattering on me you know because she's obviously lovely I was just glad that she said that she was flattered because Alexandra's lovely not because she was flattered that she'd be linked to Keanu Reeves (laughs) do you know what I mean she didn't just go well it's very flattering because Keanu's like a massive hunk it was like Alexandra she's a babe because no one's really discussed that apart from the fact that they yeah just stupid and patronising all round. Good for them, though. I hope Great he has, for them. Has Lovely. a nice, happy life. I'm sure they will do. Very well-adjusted people. Yeah. Great. So to normal. See some normal today. people. No- How patronising is that? <laughs> They're not normal. They're amazing. They're doing very well for themselves. And um, it's nice to see that some people aren't just completely insane. Good for them. Another thing that we ha- we're going to talk about. When we had no news... This, this was, was the, sh- the scrap... <laughs> The actual bottom of the barrel, like banana skin stuck at the bottom of the bin scrap of news. Go on. The sole piece of news that we had from the week, two weeks ago, a week ago, when we were going to record was um, the My Chemical Romance reunion. Yes, that's the thing. So after... We're old enough now that bands are reforming. I also like that I'm quoting from Kerrang! magazine. (laughs) Forgot that was in print. Yep, it is. Uh, So after mysteriously teasing four cryptic logos on social media... Did you know that? Uh, at the time? No, no, me neither. Didn't. I don't follow them. No, uh, me My Chemical Romance have announced that they're going to be playing their first gig in seven years in December. So they'll be reforming for one of the most highly anticipated shows of all time. Wow, okay. All right, Kerrang. All right. Chill out. Chill out, guys. The Shrine in Los Angeles in December 20th. I mean, sold out almost instantly. How do you feel about this? Um, seven years doesn't really constitute... That's just like a break between albums, guys. Some people don't release albums for like years at a time. That doesn't count as like coming out of retirement. But 
were you like moderately excited about the prospect of maybe them doing a UK show? I'd go. I mean, I was a diehard My Chemical Romance fan. I was a diehard My Chemical Romance fan and we've spent a lot of time driving back from London singing pretty much their whole discography. So, you know I'm invested. Gig tickets are so expensive nowadays. Am I going to have to pay like £60 to see My Chemical Romance because that's bullshit? Also, it would be venue dependent. If it's at a festival, I reckon they might do a UK festival. What if they just play like Black Parade and Um, the new stuff after that? Danger Days. Yeah, I didn't listen to that. Into it? No, absolutely okay. not. I was past the age of will nineteen it, at that point. Will it be like when the, the Stillers announced their reunion shows, but it, the only UK show was at Reading Festival? Yes, it will definitely be like that. Mm. It will be an AFI like you have to book a ticket to see a band you don't want to see in order to see us. I'm fine. I'm not doing that. I think that my favourite thing that came out of this piece of news was that it just gave everyone, including myself, the opportunity to just like air just their properly rinse. No. My Chemical Romance? Yeah, but also like just... musically, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Just, like, replay the discography and also just, like, air your, you know, old... I used to be in my MCR diehard and this oh is God, what it so means much. to me. I mean, I will say that I saw them twice in one day once. Went to the matinee show. Oh, yes! Show. I remember you saying yeah. about that. Went to a matinee show at the Astoria in London, a now defunct venue. Saw them. They were amazing. Three Cheers tour, so... and then I also remember that tour. Yeah. I feel like we probably went to quite a few shows. I imagine that we were probably there and didn't realise. Yeah. So I went to a matinee show and then came out and then immediately queued back up to go back inside with the evening show. Back when you had the energy to bother with 100%. that. 100%. Now, I was thinking about this and I was like, Jesus. I don't even queue to go to gigs anymore. I would get, I would go to the matinee show, I think now, and then I would go home because I'd be like, oh, great, it's five o'clock, it's finished. Lovely would you, stuff. would you find any of them hot now? I still definitely fancy Franco Aero. Yeah, so. he hasn't aged too badly, has no, he? He's the one who's aged. I haven't actually seen a picture of Gerard recently. So. No, can we? Just quickly mention the fact that he's related to Joe Rogan. Oh, I, I saw this news. And I was <laughs> I've just to remembered it. this and was like, he's cousins of someone, someone that is a bit of a pick. Joe Rogan, yeah, he's a his cousins with Joe Rogan. Who knew? Never met each other. But, How embarrassing um, for him. There you go. Um, and finally, we've got some Timmy time. We do. Uh, little women's season is officially upon us. I'm stressed already. I know, it's making me feel quite sick. It's going to be like, it's going to be a lot, I think. We've had lots of Timmy stuff. The Timmy drought is officially, officially over. Oh God. Entertainment Weekly released their interview with Timmy and Sasha on the 17th of October. So we had this amazing photo shoot, which was like fully androgynous. There were freckles and frills and Timmy was wearing that white frill shirt with shiny red Ugh. pants they were so comfortable with one another they're all sort of draped all over each other and very much in that profile Sasha just seemed like she was running the show which I she's the particularly best. loved I just love her that was lovely you can tell they've got a lot of chemistry yeah. and really just it's just pumping us I think for the uh, the film and the reviews that have been coming in as well have just been like really positive I'm just so worried about how much this film's going to absolutely ruin our lives I think it's it going to ruin out. our lives and I don't for a second think think that it won't be great like I think I've got such high expectations and I think they will be matched I trust Greta Gerwig with my life so just implicitly we're best friends now like we know it like, um, she wouldn't do this to us I mean there right? was the screening of Little Women with the LA I'm um, in LA sorry with the cast yeah. and panel at the 24th of October and then like you said a lot of press screenings have happened thereafter and, and the reviews have been fairly glowing so I feel I feel like we're safe the only thing I dislike about this period is those horrible Little Women posters yes they're very like great. rom-com 90s mm. rom-com 
Rammstein oh, poster. Them. They're like really hyper, like high definition, weird yeah. airbrushedness. A thing I thought was interesting Tacky. is that I'd seen a couple of people on Twitter mentioning the fact that actually, like, it's, it shouldn't really come as a surprise that they're having to kind of think about trying to sell the film widely. Like, they don't have to pitch it to Greta Gerwig or mm-hmm. Timmy fans or mm-hmm. Sersha fans because those people are already going to go. People that are invested with Lady Bird, they're going to go. But and actually, in my head, that's like the whole world. Yeah, because it's of just fear I'm moving. And then you realise that actually that is only quite a probably yeah. what cinema would judge to be quite a small group of people Completely. like hardcore people but quite small they're very internet based people aren't they yeah. so you don't have to worry about that but if you think about you need to kind of be selling this to other people that don't spend their entire lives on the internet just Can loving these people too much yeah I think it could be like they could definitely market this as like the Christmas film of the year it definitely is going and to it be could do really well I really hope so we also had Timmy's Vogue interview which is still under sort of lock and key really annoyingly but they were talking about very loosely about the Call Me By Your Name sequel which I think they need to stop lying about because clearly it's not on the horizon they're saying it's on the horizon I don't think it is that's bullshit but he did look like such a soft boy in those photos <sighs> He's such a good boy. Lovely soft boy. I'm he just glad the drought was over. Truly, truly lovely. I'm loving all of this. Just the relationship between this cast is just so much fun. They just seem like great pals and I'm really looking forward to the press tour continuing and the next few months I think it's going to be a nice road to Christmas. So from news on to things that we've been, I think, enjoying as a loose word. I think it is a loose word for this. Um, so we weren't... Okay, so full disclosure, we considered not mentioning this particular film that we are going to talk about, but then we realised that we probably should talk about it because we're sick of people asking us about it. So yes. Consider this our definitive response. So Joker. Yes, Joker is a film. We saw the clown film. So Joker is a 2019 American psychological thriller directed by Todd Phillips, who co-wrote the screenplay with Scott Silver. The film is based on DC Comics characters and stars Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. It's an origin story set in 1981, and it follows Arthur Fleck, a failed stand-up comedian who turns to a life of crime and chaos in Gotham City. Um, Robert De Niro, Zazie Beetz, Francis Conroy, Brett Cullen, Glenn Fleshler, Bill Camp, Shea Wiggum, and Mark Maron also appear in supporting roles. The film itself is inspired by 1970s character studies and the films of Martin Scorsese. Full disclosure, that is a very loose, like... (laughs) Oh, it's inspired. It it's a homage. Off. I mean, it's we'll come on not, to that. but okay. Actually, interestingly, which I didn't realise, Scorsese was initially attached I saw to the that. project as a producer, but he's not a producer. The graphic novel Batman Killing Joke from 1988 was the basis for the film's premise, but mm-hmm. Phillips and Silver otherwise did not look at specific comics for inspiration. Joker is the first live-action theatrical Batman film to receive an R rating from the MPAA um, due to its violent and disturbing content. The film itself premiered at the 76th Venice International Film Festival in August where it also won the Golden Lion and it was released in the United States at the start of October and a similar time here I think. Mm -hmm. The initial response from critics was quite polarising Phoenix's performance was praised the dark tone portrayal of mental illness and handling of violence has divided responses though. It also generated concerns of inspiring real world violence as a response um, the movie theatre where the 2012 Aurora Colorado Mm. mass shooting occurred during a screening of The Dark Knight refused to show it and who can blame so. them who yeah can blame them um the film set box office records for an october release and has grossed over um 874 million dollars worldwide making it the seventh highest grossing film of this year and the highest grossing r-rated film of all time so that's a little bit of background for the film 
I will say that from a personal point of view, I was very apprehensive going into it. I think when we'd seen that the film had been announced and, and knew that they were filming it, I was intrigued. Joaquin Phoenix is someone whose work I really enjoy and I think that he always does very interesting things in film. Todd Phillips, however, is not someone whose work I particularly respect. He has made comedies which I have enjoyed, but he doesn't really strike me as someone that has the wherewithal to do, I don't know, a particularly dark take on a character like this. So in that sense, I was quite apprehensive. So what was your kind of initial feeling going into it? And then what what do you what did you take away from the film? I mean, I think it's safe to say that A, I'm not coming at this review from a DC comic fan standpoint. So I'm not particularly knowledgeable. There's bits and pieces I know, but I'm not, you know, that's not my point of view. Yeah. I think my lack of enjoyment, well, my sort of nervousness going into this film and my kind of overall lack of enjoyment, because I didn't, it's not an enjoyable watch, is it? Um, But I didn't take a huge number of positives away from this film having seen it. And I think it boils down to a couple of things. I think I'm a person who's very, I do, like context is important for me and I find it hard to separate context from around things. So I did find it very hard to separate the very male outrage directed at anyone especially women who were criticizing the film before I had seen it and like it or not that was a very real reaction that happened and we know people that suffered from females from writing reviews in which they said they didn't like this film and they were coming at you know it from people on twitter and knowing that we would have to tread carefully when reviewing this film and us having to like discuss whether we could even be bothered to review this on the podcast because we didn't want the backlash just speaks volumes like i don't know why i would feel particularly enthusiastic about going into it when that's like the context that i felt you know as you were saying like todd phillips i'm not you know i'm not a particular fan of his I don't really think much about him but he you know talked very much about outrage being a commodity and sort of you know people being snowflakes and blah 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 ahead of this as well and there was a lot that I had kind of swirling around in my mind before going in I was kind of prepared to maybe like it more than I thought and then maybe feel a bit bad for yeah. liking it so much and that was something that we talked about had yeah it? that we were like oh god imagine if we go into this and we I actually, actually think it's like great it. yeah um yeah and when the trailer first came out i was really pumped for it Same. i thought it looked really good yeah. i can't work out what came first whether people being like this idea the, the stereotype of like the angry incel whether yeah everyone being so nervous about this film almost created that reaction or whether that reaction was always going to be there. I don't know what came first, but I think, you know, we're right to be concerned about this film and right to have those conversations. I think Joaquin is obviously a magnificent actor. You can't doubt at all that he, you know, is a great performer and he doesn't give a bad performance in this at all. He portrays, you know, a very fragile man's descent into violence in quite a captivating way. He's a very physical actor, so it's all very interesting. It's an interesting premise. I think we both like the dark and gritty kind of takes on these kind of comic book adaptations. But, you know, I don't need anyone to tell me that I don't get it just because I don't think it worked very well. I get that it's, you know, about the downtrodden working class of society. It's about mental illness, about how being abused as a child can really fuck you up. But I didn't find it much more impactful beyond being a bit grim and a bit spiteful. Yeah, I know what you mean. I feel like, for me, it just feels like it's purposefully trying to be controversial. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the kind of the class aspect and the working class Mm -hmm. and the sort of, you know, maligned of society. Because it 
feels like it kind of uses the Arthur's mental health troubles and his position as kind of a societal punching yep. bag yes because it is relentless things happen to him throughout and you're just like oh god that as well and that as well and that as well yeah i mean he's it, literally been kicked twice he's yeah down, but he? it almost uses that as a way to justify his behavior and I'm, and I'm not saying that if someone is subject to a lot of negativity in their life then they might lash out but it, it felt like a really troubling sort of way of saying that like oh people with mental health issues who also you know have funding cut or anything like that then they're actually they're not on effect from that is that they're going to go out and they're going to like kill someone and it yeah. just that for me just felt like such a negative way of looking at it and I, I don't think that the POV that the film has on anything like that is in any way interesting or intelligent mm. I think that you could have in the hands of perhaps someone else there could have been a really interesting look at you know what happens to vulnerable people when austerity hits you know yeah. exploring the impact that funding cuts on things like mm-hmm. mental health provisions what the outcome of that that could have been a really interesting mm. thing to explore but it just feels like it, and it, it doesn't work here as say. well because they've attached it to joker yeah, exactly. like it's a really interesting as you say like premise and idea to get your teeth really into but why i i'm just not bothered about giving joker that backstory no. and joker's from what i can tell always been like fairly motivationless like yeah. there's not really we don't really know why he is the way he is a lot of what motivates him is just you know like he's ledger's portrayal we don't really know he's just no. a motivationless madman really and that's really scary and i just didn't really like i didn't need this really stereotypical backstory of like I just felt quite lazy in a way and you know yeah they've talked a lot about you know how it was a Joker film because they basically wanted to do this film and then they thought they'd get money by slapping Joker on it and I felt like it did feel like that but the thing is though they made quite a big song and dance about how it was going to be quite separate from Batman origin story yeah it's not no it's really interesting the way they shoehorn that in yeah it's so like that you know in a lot of the press and the build-up it was like no this is like a standalone Joker film it's really separate from the DC universe and I mean I will say that like Batman Batman and the the Batman story historically that he's always been the super superhero mm. loosest terms that I've engaged with the most like yeah. growing up I was super into Batman I really rate all of the Batman mm. films of of the varying quality that they are I was I mean I think that the, the Nolan trilogy are just like it's an they're an exceptional piece of work mm-hmm. and so for me I was just like actually like it just seems very strange to me that you would make such a big deal about it being like no it's Joker 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 it's just about him and then actually there are so Not many really. threads that come back to the Wayne family so it just feels a bit like well what was the point then and yeah i mean i mentioned in the intro about the references to scorsese i just spent the entire time thinking do you know what i actually would just rather go home and watch taxi driver i'd rather watch king of comedy you've got fucking de niro in the film for god's sake it's like it's not subtle with that's i mean and because wes came with us and that was his he was not really fussed about the film but his main gripe with the film was actually it's supposed to be a homage but it's not it's just a lazy rip-off he was like i could just it feels like beat for beat they've just taken elements of the Scorsese films that they really like and they've just injected them into this film and if you take those out and you take Joaquin's quite physical performance out I'm not really sure what you've got left other than quite a lazy I don't I don't think there's anything much left no I, I feel absolutely the same and it was interesting for me actually because I watched Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master last mm. week and that's obviously Joaquin Phoenix yeah. performance and that's quite a physical performance as well and it was really 
really it was a real palate cleanser mm-hmm. after Joker because I think the thing is you can't fault Joaquin Phoenix's performance God, in this no. film because he is just doing the incredible work that he does mm-hmm. as an actor in any context. He can still be great in an unsuccessful film. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is that then to watch the master and kind of go like, oh, well, actually, like in terms of performances, he's just doing what he always does within he's the confines of a great. film that doesn't work. Yeah, and I think the wider contextual reaction to this film, like you so eloquently mentioned, I think it's really hard to to separate the film from all of that. And I think that is the problem is mm-hmm. that when you've got people like Todd Phillips as the director he so there was an interview where he was asked about why he stopped making comedies and why he's sort of taking a different mm. tact and he said go try and be funny nowadays with this woke culture there were articles written about why comedies don't work anymore I'll tell you why because all the fucking funny guys are like fuck this shit because I don't want to offend you and he's been quite outspoken about you know woke culture liberal culture and he just sounds like a pig yeah and I mean I don't know if you saw this but Mark Maron who's in the film for a really brief period of time mm. he is someone who i think so obviously he was very friendly with lewis louis ck sure and, and he came up at the same time yeah, with a yeah, lot yeah. of those comedians mm. who have now kind of been rightfully so thrown to the side just yeah. because of their absolutely questionable nature and i find the thing with mark maron is that he's someone that actually has the sense to actually take a look at things he might have said or done and kind of like build like step on back it and grow and go, from okay, it. Yeah. And considering he's in this film, his response to Todd Phillips's comments on that, that was at the beginning of the episode, I think he did with Danny DeVito on his podcast, he always does like a rambling mm-hmm. intro beforehand and he always addresses stuff. And he said, there's plenty of people being funny right now, not only being funny, but being really fucking funny. There are still lines to be rode. If you like riding a line, you can still ride a line. If you want to take chances, you can still, t- still take chances. Really, the only thing that's off the table culturally at this juncture and not even entirely is shamelessly punching down for the sheer joy of hurting people and it, it goes on to say mm. you know he said there's as i've said before it's no excuse if you're too intimidated to try and do comedy that's deep or provocative or even look a little controversial without hurting people then you're not good at what you do no it's so true or maybe you're just too insensitive and yeah. i just think like that's true actually and i think i mean i've been absolutely horrified by some of the responses online from men about female written responses and just general negative responses yeah. to this film because a lot of them like, have been female yeah. and you can't just roll your eyes and go oh course you'll say you know course your problem is that you think it's like you know because it's justified the things that people have been worried about have been happening especially online yeah and the reaction I, has been the reaction we thought it would be i've i didn't enjoy this film it felt like a slog for me i just was rolling my eyes cringing at you just not having a particularly good time and the fact that i even had to leave the cinema and then think about like oh actually do I want to air my POV online because I worry about the backlash from everyone we know and the amount of people I have encountered that have either told me that my response to this film is wrong or that I don't understand it or, or that just I've demanded like a blow for blow account of why I don't like this film like with any other film if I said oh it just didn't work for me no one would give a shit yeah. but for some reason because it's to be honest because it's mental illness yeah. people think that like they think it's a you know a, a great piece of work reflecting on mental illness fine but because I don't think it works it therefore means I'm being like insensitive or something they want like a blow by blow account for me to justify myself like why do I need to fucking justify myself over a film Completely. calm down and I think the thing is as well is that so knowing going into the film I think we both knew that actually you know oh well a lot of the women that we know have not enjoyed it I wonder why and then you know so within the first 20 minutes there's a, sust- a sustained period of like Arthur follows one 
stalking. Fe- stalking follows one of the female characters. Just stalking. And it's so it's little things it's like gross. that. And I, I don't understand how you could sort of endure that and think like, oh, yeah, no, this is a really good representation. I mean, I am not so insensitive that I don't think that actually some of the things that it might be talking about with regards to mental health will resonate with mm-hmm. people. That's fine. Of course. I'm not, I'm not, you know, disputing that. That's absolutely fine. But in terms of being a positive representation of mental health... And the, this film wanted me? you to feel sympathetic towards yeah. him. And they can say, oh, no, that's not, you know, that was all left on the table and you feel how you feel about it. And we weren't, you know, being sympathetic. You know, we didn't want him to seem good or bad. But you do. You want people to feel sympathetic towards him in this film. And I don't. It's purposefully positioned to try yeah. and make you feel bad for him. I mean, and I don't. And so it, with regards to kind of reviews and responses to the film, there are so many out there and I really would encourage people to... There's a whole spectrum as well. There really is. Like, yeah. just about every action has been had yeah. to do with this film. One thing in particular that I read that I really enjoyed was um, Hannah Woodhead, who writes for Little White Lies. Mm. She did a, a blog I saw on the that. Um, Girls on Top's website. It's um, called Who's Laughing Now on Mental Illness in Todd Phillips' Joker. And it, the entire piece is worth reading and we'll definitely link to it so it you know she says in an attempt to distance itself from any notions of being a superhero movie it presents a grim dark world in which people are pathologically self-serving and profoundly jaded cuts to social services render the most desperate for help deprived of it and phillips attempts to use a fractured society as a catalyzing factor in his protagonist's journey to becoming an infamous mass murderer Mm. the stigmatization of mountain illness in cinema has existed for decades phillips film isn't thoughtful enough to have anything to add to the conversation which is exactly what i feel it merely perpetuates a pre-existing harmful narrative that people with a mental illness are inherently dangerous violent individuals who should be avoided and that there's some sort of catch-all iteration of insanity rather than a litany of mental health conditions which might be dismissed as such each with their own unique symptoms and difficulties Mm -hmm. and i think that was the main thing for me is that it's there's this entire arc of like he just wants to be seen by people he just wants to be seen by people and i get that you know i understand that that is something that you know not feeling as though the world sees you as you wish to be seen I, Mm -hmm. i understand but it's that it's the fact that there's this horribly misogynistic implication running throughout the film that actually if the women in his life had been a bit nicer to him yeah i mean that by, by right. like, that is what it boils down to like if his mum had been nicer and he could get a girlfriend he would be then maybe he'd be all right and that's just not an attitude that we need to perpetuate really is no. it so i mean i just i didn't really enjoy it i don't understand why it's being applauded with such accolades i think that the problem is is that whacking phoenix's performance like we've said many times is very good in it and i think that's actually clouding people's judgment on it and if you enjoy it that's absolutely fine i'm not i'm not critiquing that but i think you need to understand that actually it's perfectly acceptable for people to have a fairly negative reaction to this film yeah always it's just it's not baffling to me at all to be honest i can see you know i'm not even baffled if people like the film or think it's good like it's not my reaction but I can see there are good parts in it, so you know I'm not I'm not surprised by that. But yeah, it's just this like people needing some sort of blow by blow account from me as to why I'm just really bored of talking about it, to be honest. Yeah. Okay, moving on to more positive things. I have seen Doctor Sleep twice in the past week. I love that you've seen it twice. I've not seen it at all. I know we were meant to see it together and it just didn't work. And then I unexpectedly saw it twice. Um, so just a really quick kind of gloss over review, quick review of it because April hasn't seen it yet but it's the long-awaited sequel to Stephen King's The Shining and Stanley Kubrick's 1980 adaption based on King's novel The Same Name which was released in 2013. Um, The film itself was 
was released here on the 31st of October, so it was a nice Halloween treat. It was written, directed and edited by Mike Flanagan of uh, Haunting of Hill House fame, Hush, Oculus, Gerald's Game. Um, he's definitely a, uh, I don't want to say an up-and-comer because he's been around for quite a while, but he's definitely someone that people were taking note of within the genre. The film, it stars Ewan McGregor as Dan Torrance. We've got Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat, alongside, Ky- I think it's Kylie, Kylie Curran, Carl Lumley, Zane, Zane Zahn, McLaren, so bad with these names, and others. As a quick synopsis, this film takes place many years after the events of The Shining, and we've got Dan Torrance as an adult battling with the same alcoholism that consumed his father. And he meets Abra, who's a courageous teenager with her own powerful extrasensory gifts. So she's got the shining like Danny. And instinctively recognising that Dan shares her power, Abra has sought him out, desperate for his help, against a group called the True Knot, who are led by Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson. So this group, the True Knot, they're a travelling group, they feed off the powers that people like Danny and Abra have. They feed off the shine in order to, I say their quest for immortality, they don't live forever, but they live for a very, very long time. So they're basically like vampires, glorified vampires. This film has just come out in the US. It actually came out later in the US than it did in the UK. Um, It hasn't done massively well at the box office in terms of people going out to see it. I don't know whether the marketing needed to make it clearer that it was a Shining sequel. I don't really know what's going on there or whether people just don't care. Not sure. That's interesting because I felt like when I saw all of the bus ads, Mm -hmm. like all of the stuff... Did it seem really clear to you? It felt very obvious. They were like, that was a... So even Big just the of positioning it. of mm. like the layout, the way that the poster looked, it just felt like you couldn't really miss that it was shining related. Like they, right. in fact, they were really hinging a lot of that, you know, around the, the promotion of the film. Yeah, it's it's strange, but it hasn't, it doesn't, it just hasn't been a huge, you know, it's not going to be it or it chapter two. But the reviews themselves have been largely very positive. For me, I've seen it twice, and I actually really enjoyed it really enjoyed it and I think it's like a huge huge job to try and not only adapt a Stephen King novel well as we have discussed before but adapt a a Stephen King novel and do something that is a sequel to Kubrick's The Shining as well so it's a film that is doing both so it has to get it right for the King fans and it has to get it right for the Kubrick fans and that is a fucking mammoth task and I think he's done so so well with it the book is something I struggled with and I find that this film kind of justifies the book's existence actually it's not a book that I like and I think the film does a really good job of streamlining it and making it a lot scarier so in the book this this group the true knot this kind of weird hippie traveling group were just pretty kind of campy and weird to me it wasn't i didn't find it scary at all they really go to extremes in this film there's some really horrible moments that really make you realize that this idea of silly campy hippie carny style rose the hat and her crew are actually just fucking horrible creatures so it's pretty grim in places yeah it just does a really good job of reconciling the two the book and the film i think everyone will be happy to an extent and it gives real heart to the characters involved there's a whole scene where danny is now working in a hospice and he's using his powers to basically 
ease people out of their pain and help them when they're dying. So the moment they realise they're going to die, he takes, you know, a lot of their pain away or helps them feel less frightened. And there's like a really, yeah, there's a really human element to it that made me well up actually watching it. It was a bit where he's like singing with this elderly man who's dying, who's really frightened. And it's just, it's really, really nice. It's got that kind of, it's got a heart to it in the way that like Stanley Kubrick's film is probably my favourite film ever. The Shining is probably my favourite film ever. Those characters aren't, you don't feel a lot of warmth for those characters. They're not characters that you feel a lot for. You don't feel the heart behind them or the story behind them really. So I think this does a lot of good in terms of bringing that characterisation in. A common criticism of Flanagan, like King actually, is that he can't nail endings particularly Mm -hmm. well. So a lot of people loved Haunting of Hill House but didn't like the ending. This is kind of where all the good work becomes slightly undone for me as well. I think the ending, the final sequence does let it down, gets way too bogged down in the events of the film and sort of the uh, echoes back to the film, let's put it that way, are very, very on the nose. Um, It's a very literal journey back to the Outlook Hotel and that didn't quite work for me. I think that's a shame. But having watched it twice, I do think it's really good and really enjoyable, very engrossing. The use of music is fucking amazing. There are so many nods to the original score. It's pretty much all just a reimagining of the original score. Um, And if you know that score well, it's just immediately strikes something in your mind I think loads of fun little nods to the original book and the film loads of easter eggs Ewan McGregor's really hot in it even as a really grisly troubled alcoholic so Ewan McGregor with a beard's really doing it for me in this film horrible alcoholic Ewan McGregor really really hot just generally I have a load of good feeling towards Mike Flanagan I think he's an excellent filmmaker he did a really good job with this I hope people go and see it because I do think it's really worthwhile and I think you will enjoy it when you do see it I will get around to eventually. watching it I do like Ewan McGregor quite a lot as we discussed afterwards although we did realise that he probably hasn't done anything good that's the thing about 10 years Ewan McGregor hasn't done anything good for a while so it was nice to see him doing something pretty good here like his he you really root for him in this and you really feel for him um, and that doesn't always happen, I think, in these kinds of films. The sort of male protagonist isn't always the one that I'm most interested in, but I thought he was very heartfelt and very lovely. Um, so you saw Doctor Sleep, and then a few things that I have seen mm. recently. I went to see The Peanut Butter Falcon, which oh, is yeah. a um, Shia LaBeouf, uh, Dakota Johnson film. I think I texted you and was like, I think I like oh, Dakota God, Johnson. Oh, God, don't even, film. not even allowed. I mean, that, it was but. just, it was, it's one of the most sincere things I've seen this year. It was such well, a nice, nice film, and I. I love Shia so much. Do you like Shia? And he's just such a delight in this film. So if you get the chance to go and see this, you should do so. We also, we saw Marriage Story. We went to an advanced screening of Marriage Story last month. And we will be reviewing it when it hits Netflix in December. But we We just want to flag that... We have seen Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. We have a lot of feelings about that film. I worry about um, how long the podcast will be when we have to unpack Six hours. Six hour review of Marriage Story. So stay tuned for that. I have also rewatched recently all of the Ocean's Eleven Well done. And I also finished my Paul Thomas Anderson watch by watching the watching master, the master. So i've seen everything now there we go another thing i'd like to reiterate as well is that um the king is now on netflix yeah so if you haven't listened to our london film festival review episode then please do so because you can hear all of our thoughts feelings and emotions about robert panson's accent and timmy's hair on that episode yes really enjoyed i watched that again as well um and also shout out to everyone who didn't like us mentioning rob pattinson and twilight in the same sentence off the back of that last episode our pats forever our pats i don't care 
So on the TV front, we were going to talk about Watchmen at length, but then we've sort of just decided that actually we think we'll hold it for a future episode. But just to say that we both have been watching Damon Lindelof's reimagining, re-envisaging, remixing, whatever it is. of yeah. Animals Watchmen, and we will be just talking about it at a later date. Some other things that I have been enjoying recently on the TV front, um, I watched all of Big Mouth season three, which I enjoyed a little bit less than I did the previous two seasons, but it's always a delight because mm. it's just a lot of my favourite comedy people pretending to be adolescent horny teenagers which <laughs> what what could you not like into? about that and also I just want to mention that season 2 of Succession finished ended on October the 13th it's just oh. the best thing I've seen this year I just cannot begin to tell you how much I love Succession I got a Succession tattoo yesterday yes I did notice that well done so there we go <laughs> maybe one day you'll watch Succession maybe one day who knows I just love Jeremy Strong as Kendall Roy lovely Matthew McFadden as Tom Wamsgate Shiv Roy reads uh, Sally Rooney's Conversations with Friends in an episode. I just okay, that's a lot. Need to scream from the rooftops how much I love Succession. Please, please, please watch it. It's the best. So just a few quick fire things about television this time, um, which we'll pew pew pew, which we'll talk about in depth next time. But before we move on, uh, this seems like the right section to put this in. But April and I were talking recently, or rather I was messaging her about Riverdale because it's something that brings me immense joy and comfort, but is also completely batshit. Bananas. And we, I was taking her through some of the current storylines and just how ridiculous it is. And we realised, like, you could totally do a game of which of these storylines are real and which are fake. Well, think, wasn't it also because I sent you a screen grab of someone who had tweeted a something that happened in Riverdale and I'd send it to you and I was like, is this real? Yeah. And you were like, no, yeah, it is. And I was like, wow, okay, didn't expect that. No Context Riverdale is a great account, yeah, that's by what the way, it was, on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, it's so good. But anyway, so we were thinking, yeah, which of these storylines are real and which are fake? So I've designed a miniature task for you. So I think that it's useful for listeners to know that I think in my life I've watched four episodes of season one I wish you'd watched more I just got behind on it and I'm never going to have the time there's so many episodes April so many I enjoyed it I just don't have the time to catch up anymore most people I know have given up it's just me left I'm the sole person left watching this show yeah on Riverdale Island it's the the hill it's the island I'm going to die on basically I'm marooned on this island by myself and a bunch of jingle jangle and jughead so I have got six plot lines here interesting and i want you to tell me whether they're real or whether they're fake this is also going to test my knowledge of how much i listen to you and b of what yeah. i take from i've these. deliberately gone for ones that i'm hoping i haven't mentioned to you before okay. although it's quite possible just or so you might many, have though. heard about it in twitter land so, so um many. we'll see okay. so go um I'm primed okay so plot line one during the height of riverdale's jingle jangle drug <laughs> scandal betty takes a bad hit and develops psychic visions she corrects predicts a number of plot points in future episodes of that season and then it's never addressed again um i don't think that's true i think that's false that's false well done okay one one out of six during his brief stint in in prison for murder archie joins a fight club which is fueled by a crooked prison warden archie gets branded like a cow by that warden and rich people pay to watch the young inmates brutalize each other like brad pitt in fight club it's never addressed again true true well done (laughs) i only know that because i know that archie went to prison yeah and he did join a fight club and get branded like 
uh, cattle. Betty goes into her backyard to find that her mum and sister are involved in an occult ritual which involves throwing a pair of babies into a fire and watching them levitate. It's never addressed again. True. That is true. <laughs> is a running theme in Everdell if things aren't addressed again. <laughs> No, maybe. Maybe. In order to join the serpents, Betty has to do a pole dance to Mad World, aka the most depressing song from Donnie Darko, whilst her family and friends all watch. It's never addressed again. I think that's false. That is true. It's true. Mad World. That's not it's so se- sad. That's not a sexy song. It's the saddest thing you've ever seen. Oh God. Okay. The Riverdale mine collapses and Kevin's <laughs> brother Tommy is killed. Sorry, there's a mine. Yeah. Cheryl, Betty, Veronica, and Jughead enact a spell to bring Tommy back to life, which seems to work. But Tommy's acting extremely strangely and is clearly not the person he once was. The plotline ends with Kevin having to kill his own brother. It's never a dressed again uh true false that's from sabrina <laughs> oh do you know what i think that's why i said true because i, I i've watched two episodes of sabrina just and that was like them. one of them yep oh, okay. just archie gets mauled by a bear it's never addressed again uh true yes that is true <laughs> There you go. There's my little... This programme. Did you enjoy it? I loved it so much. Yeah. Can we do that again in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I just think that the fact that things aren't addressed ever... No. I love that when shows do that. Just like... so bananas. Yeah. Archie gets branded like a cow by a corrupt prison warden. Never addressed again. What's the branding he gets? I can't remember, you know. But it's just like, yeah, you're mine now. You're my fighting bitch. Like, gladiator. It's basically gladiator. The fact that he gets mauled by a bear and almost dies, and then it's just never addressed again. What kind of bear is it? I can't remember. Grizzly? Grizzly bear. Where is he when Um, it happens? He has to go on the run for a while. (laughs) And he's, like, living on a farm and, like, I don't know, like, shoveling hay and, like, banging the woman that lives there. And he's on the run, basically, because... a bit like... Is that when he's broken out of prison? He might have got broken out of prison. Okay. Is it like in that episode of Twin Peaks where James goes Yes, it is basically James from Twin Peaks going on the run. Jughead goes with him for a while. It's really weird. Is Archie Um, the James of Riverdale? Yes, he is. 100%. But yeah, and also Betty does do a pole dance. A really sad one in lingerie to Mad World in front of her mum and all of her family in order to become a serpent. Why does she want to join the serpents? Is it because she fancies No, she wants to be with Jughead forever. Oh, sure, of course. Wait, so she has to be in the serpents? Yeah, you have to be in the band. The band. (laughs) You know what? I mean, in the band. The anyway, truly a ridiculous show. Riverdale's mad, isn't it? About shit. Um, musically. Go on. Shall we touch upon... The elephant in the room. The elephant in the room, which is the arrival of Harry Styles 2. This just feels like it happened 10 years ago, but actually it was only a few weeks ago. And I'm so... I can't even think about it without feeling, like, desperately unwell. It's just deeply traumatising, so all we, the best and worst. So we mentioned in a previous episode, I think maybe two episodes ago, we, we talked about Harry's Rolling Stone interview... And we recapped, you know, sort of a few things that he mentioned in that. So we sort of talked around... It's been boiling, hasn't it? Like bubbling under. We talked around the idea of HS2. Yes. And the fact that it was looming and when we thought it might happen. And then... Suddenly it's upon us. So we had some billboards appear. We did. So Do You Know Who You Are appeared in Sydney, London, some places in the US. And then I think pretty much like around the same time on the 5th of October, Harry had tweeted, Do... D-O. So people kind of connected the dots there. And then on the 11th of October, when I was fucking sleeping and having a dream about it, which is really strange, Harry dropped the first single, Lights Up. So we've had that now, which was... 
I think for us at least that I was automatically won over by this song. I love it. I was in public yesterday having my dinner <clears throat> when I was in Manchester and it came on in a restaurant and I really had to just like contain my excitement. It's just so good. It was just a lot really. The video was amazing. It was released on National Coming Out Day and just the bodies and the outfits and the sweating. All those people touching Harry Styles with a knowing look in their eyes. Men and women just having a really good time with sweaty Harry and also the fact that it really just felt like a companion piece to green light the video yeah, for green light just did. with the colors and so that cool. oh it's just such a good video it was a delight wasn't it and i think that i was totally like you i've just absolutely rinsed that one song absolutely rinsed it it's definitely gonna be top of my spotify playlist now for this year because so. i accidentally listened to it like five thousand times in a row because it's quite a short song as yeah, well there was one walk i think home from work like maybe within the 24 hours of it coming of it appearing on spotify where i literally just had it on a loop yeah but like, that was the only thing that i was listening to on the way home on a loop it's like two and a half minutes it's not very long no just and it, i feel like it's come at such a good time where we just need some harry the nights are drawing in it's getting really dark it's not you know it's cold it's not a great time what we need is some sweaty harry styles so we had that didn't we that little burst and then yeah. it went all bit quiet yeah and then the 23rd of october we had the tweet kiwi walked so watermelon sugar could run love that watermelon sugar is a confirmed song so we're very very excited about that and it sounds amazing companion piece to kiwi maybe oh my god all the promos ramping up we've got this snl double duty that's coming up very on soon bloody saturday. on bloody saturday so we need to be watching that together and trying not to die so I assume we might hear new music then he was on bbc radio one with greg james he was on capital fm etc etc so we've suddenly got this huge burst of harry styles ness and we're all thinking like any second now he's going to announce the album we just know he is and then five days ago, and I think I actually willed this into existence. I think you did. Don't, don't, don't downplay it. So the day before, I had said to April Von, what I need right now, I really need some Harry Styles. And then, as if by magic... You made it happen. He announced that fine line, the second album, would be released on the 13th of December, which is really friggin' soon. I can't believe we're getting a Harry Styles album before Christmas. We talked about the idea of it coming before the end of the year, but we didn't It just seems so think, unlikely. No. I was like, it will probably be like, I don't know, just early. I just didn't think it would be before Christmas. This is all happening too fast. It's just insane. Too fast. He's announced one night only at the Forum in Inglewood, California, on the, the night of the album release, which has sold out. And he's currently playing Hangman with fans on Twitter who are trying to work out the song track list and they're doing pretty well they've worked out treat people with kindness is a track title um it's just been really cheeky but it's a lot i just have no energy for this and do you know what the worst part about all of it is is, is that his album comes out the day after we have to do a general election i know i mean i don't know whether that's like a consolation or i feel it is it's either going to be a consolation to a negative outcome or we're going to all wake up on the 13th of December and have a Labour government and also have a Harry Styles album. That would be the dream. I'm not going to pretend that I'm very hopeful about that. But we'll have Harry though, either people, way. Either way, we'll have Harry, which is something. And if people could maybe promise me that they will listen to the album in full if Labour get into power, that would be great. Vote Labour, listen to Harry Styles. 
So on to our grand topic for this episode, and we're very pleased to be talking about the follow-up to Andre Asiman's novel, Call Me By Your Name. He has published the sequel, it's called Find Me, and it came out this month, or just at the end of last month, really. So April and I are joined by a very special guest this episode, which is very exciting, over FaceTime. Love a guest. It is Claire. Hi. Hi. And you're coming over from Glasgow? I want to say Glasgow. From Glasgow, yes. There you go. You can Very happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> to have you thank you for joining us and so we had various um technological issues but she's been very just so patient just so patient about it so before we start tell us a little bit about you give yourself a little introduction and tell us a little bit about your relationship to call me by your name because i think everyone's heard about us a million times <laughs> okay so i'm a writer mainly animate scenes about kind of pop music and film and queer culture mainly and i read i first read call me by your name a long time ago when it was first published at the kind of i think it was about 2009 when Mm -hmm. you could only get it as a kind of import before it was oh yeah sure and i think i'd heard of it from like an internet friend or something like that who was like you have to read this as as we hear about every classic classic Um, (laughs) yeah so i'd read it and like instantly loved it and was instantly like one of my favorite books and tried to get everybody else that I knew to read it when I could find a copy on eBay somewhere <laughs> and gift it to someone <laughs> so when they when I heard that they were optioning it for a film I was really nervous about it as is expected yeah so I went to see one of the first screenings of it at Berlin Film Festival oh wow sure. okay. kind of February 2017 yeah mm-hmm. yeah February 2017 and I was very relieved and also <laughs> cried solidly for oh, the last God. 45 minutes sure. so much so <laughs> traumatizing just to remember it honestly <laughs> so yeah I was very relieved and as well as like loving the film mm. just like the sense of relief was palpable yeah um, because I loved these characters in this book so much but um so I think when uh, kind of Luca uh, was talking about doing a film sequel, mm. I was like, no, don't do it. No, don't, don't do, do that. Because, yeah. because you, you're never going to reclaim that. Ma- you're never going to get that magic back. No, like, I was not just like, just go on holiday together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys can just hang out. It's fine. Just put it on yeah. like Instagram stories. It'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. And everybody will enjoy that. And we won't have to have this thing as well. But then I think when the book was announced, I was a bit more... I had a bit more faith in that just because there's obviously so much more that you can do with a book and it was the that you don't have to worry about what age the actors are (laughs) putting a fake moustache on Timothy like oh he's 40 years old now yeah (laughs) doing the like um the digital fur technology on his beard (laughs) just putting Um, a grey beard on him so yeah and obviously I I kind of read all of uh, Andre Asman's other books Mm. so I I liked those as well so I was kind of just treating it as like another book yeah I guess yes. yeah, so, yeah so yeah it was I was really excited about it and as we will talk about it did not disappoint <laughs> yeah I mean some context I'm sure anyone who's listening to this will have read it but so Andre had was asked back in 2017 about writing a sequel and he replied that the problem with a sequel is that you need a plot 
But then by December, he had announced on Twitter (laughs) that he was writing a sequel, which was very lucky. Firstly, you talk a little bit about your... Because we've heard about Claire's kind of expectations of the sequel. How did you feel about it? Um, Be honest. Be honest. I was really apprehensive because I feel like we've talked at length before about our kind of deep attachment to Call Me By Your Name as a film and Call Me By Your Name as a book. I think it's interesting to think about the fact that you, Claire, had read the book first and then saw the film. For us, it was different. We we went to a preview screening in the October of 2017 of the film and then I read the book afterwards, which is not... We both nece- read it over Christmas, Yeah, didn't we did, didn't we? It's not necessarily the way I like to go about things at all. Um, I usually, if I know something's being adapted, I, I, I'm i a real stickler for trying to read the book first ahead of yeah. seeing the film, because I often find that the problem with seeing the film first and then trying to read the book is you're just thinking about the film. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, in this case, I have I didn't mind so much, because it was just quite nice to be reading the book and kind of be like, yep, that's Elio and that's Oliver. Well, it's such a great adaptation of it. Yeah. It, and yeah, actually yeah. That, really nice that was interesting for me actually to be reading the book and kind of go actually yeah I do think they're really good renderings of it so I think that that's obviously the kind of context for, for us in terms of the film and um, calling by a name as a book initially mm. so when it was announced that Andre had written the kind of the follow-up book to it I was really apprehensive I know we'd talk, sort of talked before about how like you I just don't want there to be a follow-up to you the just film. don't want to spoil a perfect thing do no because yeah. the film for us just feels like such a perfect piece of yeah. cinema that I really want worry about what a, a sequel will even if it's Luca directed I, I worry mm. that that will just kind of undo the magic of the film yeah itself. I don't know if you can strike kind of gold twice no I think respect. it's I think it's tough so I think with regards to the book I was kind of moderately sort of initially I was like oh okay cool and then I was just really apprehensive going into it I think that calling it sacred is just a, is a bit like much but it does feel a little bit like that for me I mean the film means so much for us in the same way that it means so much for you so I think in terms mm-hmm. of kind of a follow-up I was just although I've thought at length before about like oh I wonder what the characters would be doing because the mm-hmm. initial the, the first book itself has that epilogue within yeah. it yeah, already yeah, yeah. I was really intrigued to sort of see well actually what how are you going to flesh that out what are you going to what are you going to get yeah out of it? yeah this mm. is a hard thing isn't it you kind of you have your own thoughts about what's happening with Elio and Oliver and you yeah. know, how things continue but you always want a bit more of what you love like always but it's risky business when it's put down on and I think I was just really concerned as well that it would be a little bit fan servicey. I think that was the thing. Yeah, because that was my concern yeah, as well. Yeah. I think. I think because yeah. he'd said, you know, I don't have any plot, or you know, because it felt sort of like, oh, actually, no, I am writing a follow up. I was a little bit worried that maybe he'd kind of been pestered for it on the basis that Call Me by a Name is such a big cultural sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, he'd for so many. he'd also yeah. said that the film had made him realise that he wanted to be back with them. Yeah. So again, that almost fears on there. Like, are you doing this because yeah, the film has been such a, a big thing as a cultural phenomenon like you don't want him to feel pressured into doing that but here we are and now we've had it and we've read it and i've i actually gave it another read through last last week the week before in anticipation of doing this which was really interesting and it pretty much cemented what i thought before upon first reading which is interesting um just to give a really crap overview of the plot because i don't want to go into it too deep but this is provided by waterstone so it's not even my fault <laughs> yeah. um so it's a step up from the usual wikipedia yeah see i've gone know. from wikipedia to waterstone wow. so wow. truly i'm rolling with the best here so in find me asman shows us elio's father samuel on a trip from florence to rome to visit elio now a gifted classical pianist a chance encounter on the train up Sammy's visit and changes his life forever. 
Elio soon moves to Paris, where he too has a consequential affair, while Oliver, a New England college professor with a family, suddenly finds himself contemplating a return trip across the Atlantic. And that is all you get. So that is the synopsis that's been given. And it's a book that obviously revisits a lot of themes from Call Me By Your Name um, and looks at, you know, time and desire and fate and all of these things that I'm sure we'll kind of touch on. Um, But everyone's just really excited to get back into Elio and Oliver's lives. And so we open with the first section in, it's called Tempo, which is uh, the speed or pace of a given piece. So it's all got a nice musical theme to it in these sections. Don't worry, I looked them all up for you. So uh, (laughs) we'll all know, we'll go through it together. And we open with Samuel, which I guess not everyone would have expected really we're introduced to this man on a train who we discover to be elio's father samuel who's on a trip from florence to rome to visit his son and on the train he meets this young woman miranda who's a photographer and the pair kind of instantly feel this connection who wants to start do you want to give your kind of thoughts of that section sammy's section because it's it's a lot bigger than i expected it i was like wow okay we're actually giving the most time in the book really to samuel i feel like it's almost half of the book it is i think it is it's a big it's a it's a big chunk of the book she's gonna look it up right now it's a huge section i think it is definitely yeah it's over 100 pages for sure Yeah. yeah yeah and it's compared to the first book yeah we're suddenly given a lot more time with him but um how did you find this section this was i think i had the same view as a lot of people did on this section which is that i thought that it was a little bit too long yes maybe maybe slightly because i wanted to get to elio and Oliver, but also which of course is like everybody's feelings but also this section kind of so it, it kind of goes through it's it's only set over the course of about a day yeah and I usually like things that are very kind of two people talking and yeah. it's very like almost in real time like yeah, yeah, it yeah. made me think of like um before sunrise or something yeah, like that, that yeah, yeah absolutely of, um that kind of feel of two people connecting and I always like to read about that but it felt like it kind of towards the end it kind of got into self-indulgence slightly yeah. which I think is what a lot of people reading reviews of it have said I also think that this reminds me of Asinan's books that I don't like as much. Okay, um, that's interesting, which, yeah. Uh, it reminded me of a bit of Eight White Nights, which, which is one of his novels that where it feels like his... Because I think that he's... The reason why I think he's such a good writer is that he's so good at details of of romance and finding these yes. kind of magical things yeah, that, really. and kind of putting words to these supernatural things that mm, mm. we would struggle to put words to yeah. but we recognise instantly. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like this section and, and the kind of other books that I'm not as keen on are too much about the kind of like intellectualization yeah. of the kind of chat that these people are having yeah. and, and the kind of connection between them feels intellectual rather than kind of spiritual or yeah, absolutely. and I like it when there's like a bit of both you know like mm-hmm. the kind of bit in of the kind of famous bit in Call Me By Your Name where Elio's playing the piano and he's playing mm-hmm. the different versions of the back piece yeah, yeah. it's it, it relies on a kind of like level of cultural knowledge of the reader yeah. but yeah. it also has 
a recognizable flirtation yeah, yeah. and a recognizable language that you that's universal get. isn't it that kind of yeah. knowing that he's flirting is a universal feeling yeah exactly but I felt that this like veered too much on that and it's it, it was also a bit too kind of like I don't read many books with straight characters yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so I felt a bit like oh these are straight people this is what's, yeah okay so I, I'm are, just gonna put it out there and defend like. myself I'm I, I hope I'm not like this and maybe I am like this obviously I love a lot straight people I'm um, no offense but... taken most of us are awful it's interesting that Andre because we were we were saying like it's Andre spends a because Andre's straight right yeah he's yeah. married well, he's, well well do we know he's, he's married to a woman he's married okay to a woman. that's he's, basically he's all we know not really said about his otherwise romantic yeah, yeah yeah but it does seem that maybe he's not so great at writing heterosexual relationships maybe in the same way yeah I mean it just felt like such a bold choice to like this is the follow up to such a kind of impactful queer novel mm-hmm. and then you're starting it with like yeah it's a really interesting a choice really isn't it? big chunk of kind of i just think it's an interesting i mean i think it's i found this particular section of the book a bit of a slog to get through in the yeah sense that i felt the same I, I was enjoying it but i just was really like i really want to get to like elio and oliver and yeah, i do yeah, think yeah. that's the problem with it and it, that's why it's such a bold choice to put it right at the beginning yeah. because it is i did like of, that he started with him because that reassured me about it not being fan servicing yeah 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 yeah. I, I was like all oh, right okay we're starting with the dad that's quite good like that's not they, he's gonna make us wait yeah he's making us he really reass- makes us work reassured for it. me even yeah. though i didn't want to wait yeah it was like conflicting it, but then when it got to the moment where it was like and then we went to meet elio i was like yes yes <laughs> finally we get these like tiny snapshots at the beginning it's it does feel like we're almost being teased like we're on the train yeah. and we learn through sammy that like He's been living in Italy for almost 30 years. He and his wife have split up after Elio left home. Elio is married um, and he hasn't found someone. And he talks about like Elio's p- career as a pianist. Um, and we learn all of these things through Sammy and we're getting these like tiny little teasers and we know that it must be coming. But it does it does take a while. I did definitely. So we we got the a copy of the book in the summer. We went to a screening of Call Me By Your Name at the Curzon in Soho. And mm. it was there was a Q&A with Andre afterwards and then we were all given a copy of the book before we left and I think I'd put off reading it for ages afterwards because I was just like I said massively apprehensive and when mm. I did start I remember texting you Steph and saying like I'm, I'm kind of finding this a bit difficult to get on with mm. not because it's a difficult read but just because I'm re- I'm just really apprehensive about where this is going Yeah, and you were yeah. like mm, maybe try and hold on because like Elio do-. and I think I said to you like, like does Elio are we actually gonna out? get any and you were like no 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 <laughs> stick with it stick with it because it's worth it and obviously the, there is the payoff there but it is it does sort of and I think you're right it does it felt like a bit of a justification of the book almost to kind of say like actually like it would have been so easy to immediately dive into yeah. like Elio and just Oliver like Country. 200 pages of them yeah it yeah. would have been yeah, it would it would have been a bit fan servicey though. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things that I that I did really like. So they talk a lot in this section about the concept of kind of vigils. So Sammy yeah. talks oh, to I loved that. yeah Miranda about these vigils that he takes with Elio each time they he visits him, and it's a way of sort of remembering or kind of recapturing the past. And it feels like this whole book is like a vigil. Really, there's kind of you know yeah. references to all these places that were mentioned in the first book, um, and it's those kind of vigils that we're 
like really dying to hear about yeah. and those moments that we want to recapture and when we do finally when Sammy and Miranda do eventually meet Elio they talk uh, Elio recounts being drunk in Rome with Oliver mm. and throwing up and it's just like those moments when they do when they are touched upon I think are really impactful and they're the bits that I was kind of waiting for yeah and I think what that was one of the things that we talked about after we'd initially read it was the way that um, Asimov sort of writes about memory and, and has like kind of nostalgia mm. and, and so much those are always the strongest chapters for me yeah we've discussed that before how when he's talking about that and he talks a lot or they talk Sammy talks a lot in this passage about like unfulfilled lives as yeah. well and sort yeah. of ali- arriving too late to the feast or kind of wasting your years you know missing a life that you could have had and I think Miranda says you know aren't those the absolute worst scenarios the things that might have happened but never did and might still happen though we're given up hoping they could as you say like the idea of the passing of time and like getting older and those missed opportunities he writes so beautifully about those yeah i think mm. um and that comes up again and again however when <laughs> they get to sammy and miranda just getting down to it really and hooking getting up for the first it, time so... getting down to it i definitely don't remember feeling cringe like cringy at all in the first book with any kind of like physical scene but the scene between miranda and sammy slightly made me want to die the fig thing? yeah me too it's yeah. the fig in the lighthouse yeah so so sammy's penis is described as a lighthouse and miranda is an overripe fig oh it's the fig isn't it? it's the fig and she talks about you inside me all come in juices it just it is it's amazing how it like, made me never want to have sex again no it's gross of any gender and as you say it's like for someone who i think you know the first book i had like reading the first book some of those really intimate scenes in the first book i had the same quite physical reaction i had watching the film like i was sweating reading that book yeah because so, actually, yeah. a lot of the physical stuff in the book is obviously like turned up slightly more i think than the film i mean the film obviously captures oh, it God. very well but there's actually like, a lot of the, dis- <laughs> the the very sort of visceral descriptions of it yeah in the book very much contrast with the peach peach oh. look I can, i'm Maybe so he down likes for fruit he's really into fruit that's the thing <laughs> maybe he figs. knew that he needed to ruin another fruit for everyone figs and peaches and but as you say it kind of <laughs> I really loved their conversation on the train. I kind of really liked when they met uh, her father and her father's recounting all these stories, which are, again, kind of stories of missed opportunities. Like Mm. he's talking through dissertations, I think, or something. And he's talking about sort of like, you know, soldiers going away to war and their loves left behind and finding new lives and all of these kinds of things. They're really lovely. And then towards the end of the passage, they kind of, they have sex for the first time. And then it all just gets very intense. And Sammy's talking about like, I want to have your child. I want it from you now and like no one else and there's a bit I like where she says if I could open up your body and slip into it and sew you back from the inside I would do it and I think there's kind of cannibalistic language you can call me by your name sometimes as well but it just gets very intense and slightly Twilight-esque in some Twilight-esque is definitely it like the thing that I love all the kind of intensity and Mm. like over emotional stuff in Call Me By Your Name because yeah. it feels right because it's kind of positioned from an older man remembering yeah. how he was when he was a yeah, teenager. Yeah, yeah. So it works because it's like, you know, when he's spending like two pages describing accidentally touching somebody's foot yeah. and remembering what that's like, yeah. that's Ugh. that's believable. Yeah. But 
but it's it's slightly I mean like I mean I'm 32 and I'm still very dramatic and romantic sense, same but I'd say. Uh, I mean we're all we're all the same here but it still felt not as convincing no, because yeah. it it was so kind of so poor-faced yeah. in its intensity. Absolutely. Like, there was no kind of, not as much playfulness yeah. or kind of, it didn't break in any way. It was it was just kind of like quite what people think teenagers write yeah. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Yeah, exactly. But like not how they actually really mm, do. Completely. Absolutely. It just, the Twilight bit, actually, I've just found it. Uh, I don't know who says it, but the quote is, you're oxygen to me and I've been living off methane. That is, is it. That could be a co- like a direct quote. <laughs> that, that's like that you is, are my own personal brand You are my personal heroin. brand of heroin. That is the same thing. The same. You're oxygen to me and I've been living off methane. Isn't it funny how I can, can imagine our pats with his like pearly face. Yeah, thing. with his pearly face just cringing like because the eye, like, the contacts in his eyes going, oh, you're like oxygen <laughs> to me. It's basically that, which is, you know, it does go on. I think you're right because this section goes on for quite a long time time but we you does it does then go on to we do get somewhere yeah elio arrives i've i've made a note elio arrives at page 107 oh and then like a few pages later is one of my favorite quotes from the book was where um, elio and sammy are having a conversation and he's recounting to him about how he was in rome and he says like oh i never told you about what happened and this drunken thing and he says all i can do when i'm alone is whisper his name in the dark but then i laugh at myself i just pray that i never whisper it when i'm with someone else and that really got me that yeah. was the point where I was yeah. like, actually, okay, I, I'm in now. I and it's just, and I liked yeah. that as well because that was, like I was saying about the kind of, the intensity of the previous book, this was, that was convincing to me because mm. he does have a bit of a sense of humour about it or not a sense of humour, but a, a kind of like an almost gallows humour yeah. about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He still feels it, but he's kind of feels like he has to make fun of himself in front of other people about yeah. it because yeah. he can't be as earnest about it now because so much time has passed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was such a convincing thing of for me of this older. I loved seeing this like older mm. version of Elio. Yeah, I did too. But we'll get to more of that, I'm sure. But yeah. I think that, <laughs> I think that you know the, the payoff when you get to the next section, I think is totally worth. It. I, I think this is probably my favorite section in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. So let's move on. Other than just to say near the end of this section, Elio also says that he hasn't had the courage to write, call or visit Oliver. So we would therefore imagine that some of the epilogue of Call Me By Your Name hasn't happened yet. So we're trying to kind of get into the like headspace of when this is taking place. Then into our second section, which is, is it Cadenza? Is it Cadenza? Is it, what do we think it is? Cadenza. Cadenza. I'm not a music student, so like <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. But Google tells me it's an improvised or written out ornamental passage played or sung by a soloist or soloists, which makes sense. So now we're in Paris. Elio attends a chamber music concert at a church and there he meets, do we say Mikel? You're really going in with this pronunciation. I am. Today. I'd say Mikel. Just say Michael. Michael. It's Michael. It's Michelle. I think it's Michelle. I'd say Michelle. 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 A French man. Yes. He meets a mysterious French man called Michel in Paris. So, yeah, so now we're, we're finally with Elio and he's he's met another man, another man who is older than him. So there's a, there's a thing about age gaps here. Yeah, that's something that we kept thinking about, wasn't it? About the fact that so there's obviously quite the significant age gap between Sammy and Miranda. Yeah. And there's obviously the age gap between Elio and 
and Oliver, and then there's now just the age gap between. I think when I so this we, this kept coming up mm. for us, and we were like, that's interesting. And then when I googled and I saw that like Andre Asimov's wife is like the same age as him, and I was like, oh, okay. I think we both assumed he'd have a younger wife. I thought wife. he just had a might have a younger <laughs> wife because it was like, oh, he must think maybe this maybe this is his way of like writing. I was like, this through. is such a thing. He's justifying his own relationship. But I do think if you think about the fact that you know he does write very well about time and about yeah. distance and stuff, yeah. then maybe it's like the you know younger, older wife. Yeah. Yeah. It serves that it serves well, a, but a is, it is striking, though, that all of these relationships have such a defined age gap. It kind of made sense to me, like you were saying, it kind of made sense conceptually because so much of it is about gener- love and desire and genera- mm. down generations. Generations and, and stuff, yeah. And it, and it made it made a lot of sense to me, but I, I, it, reading it, I kind of worried about the reception to it, that people were going to perhaps take it more literally yeah. as like this is like the, how disgusting that it's yeah. all these age got really but like but I think it is a conceptual choice and I mean we and I think we're probably all especially mindful of that as well because any negative reactions towards the first book and the film like there were there were things about the age gap then that some people had a problem with so yeah it feels like having another book full of age gaps would not help our case with that very much however they are all adults I think they're that, all consenting adults yeah and I think that, I think you, I think you're right Claire there is there is that sort of generational difference mm-hmm. and sort of the different yeah. takes of kind of you know what you've experienced in life and what you do with that experience and and how things that you've done throughout your life then impact how you move and how you, mm. your, your relationships going forward so I suppose that's sort of interesting having that like older younger dynamic but I mean th- this was the section that I think I, I just really enjoyed spending the most time with mm-hmm. what um, was it you liked most about this section I think it's just because it's Elio yeah I think because it's so Elio centric <laughs> and I think because obviously the because of Call Me By Your Name being from written from his perspective mm. it was just sort of very nice to sort of be back in it with him and sort of thinking about actually how his life has, has changed or how you know his relationship with Oliver's, Oliver has sort of impacted him going forward Forward. Mm-hmm. And I think it is just because it's so Elio centric, and that's not just not to say that I have a priority over Elio or Oliver as characters, because I think they're such a, 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 a contained unit together. Yeah, like their dynamic just is so. But then the book is the first book is written like from Elio's perspective, isn't it? So I think we kind of naturally gravitate think... in a way towards him because yeah. we feel like we know. Him and I think that's why so I was well. so keen to sort of get to the chunk that was kind of was so centered on him is because you sort of build up a relationship with him as a narrator within mm. the first book so it was just sort of interesting to kind of be back yeah be back with him did you enjoy this section Claire was this like a my favorite section was the Oliver section which is next but um but I loved this section it was just like you were saying it was going back to the voice that I knew yeah and going back and seeing how it was a familiar Mm -hmm. again he does it he does it really well in terms of like his stylistic choices reflect his conceptual choices really well I think like seeing how the voice that I knew had slightly changed or the the phrases that he would Mm. use was some of it was the same but then going into different kind of tones and that just really reflected to me really well this this idea of parallel lives yeah 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 the idea that he's here he's like in his 30s i think yeah but then he's also 17 at the same time but then he's also his father at the same time and Mm. it's you know that mix of voices came together really well in in this chapter i thought and also just it was just really nice to see him because when he meets the guy at the concert and then they kind of have this relationship seeing his 
kind of interactions with him and how mm. you can tell that he's obviously now more experienced yeah, in relationships and yeah. talking to pe- talking to people that he's like you know flirting with people or mm. like talking to people that he's that he likes and it's just it's really interesting in those moments to imagine his life between then and now mm-hmm. yeah and mm-hmm. and fill in the gaps with, with those kind of things like yeah. I think it's really rich in in that way yeah I feel like you can see how his confidence has clearly grown from his sort of initial interactions and his relationship with with mm. Oliver and I think that that was what I found so compelling mm. actually is actually sort of to think about how he has grown as a character and there's there is that familiarity there and there is that voice there that you recognise so much from the first book but Mm. it was just really interesting to see how he'd grown and how and I I immediately was just making like having that sort of mental compare and contrast to sort of thinking about things and I think there were lots of like really subtle sort of callbacks to the initial book there are there are a lot of I think you get a lot more echoes of Elio and Oliver and their relationship in this section and kind of just things like when Elio talks about having this sudden urge to sort of hurl himself against Michelle and kind of put his arms around his waist and all of those things that just remind you so much of his interactions with Oliver yeah Um, Yeah. and he talks about how his a lot of what his interactions with Oliver and a lot of their feelings just didn't need to be said like they didn't need to say it talk about their feelings out loud it was all left unstated but they knew how one another felt whereas it's quite different with Michelle he talks about like he he's always been very straightforward and needs someone to sort of tell him to his face and Clay, you mentioned the sort of the stuff about fathers as well, which I think is really interesting in this section. There's this kind of Freud would have a field day, really. It's like a you know a weird <laughs> romantic, but also father son bond between Elio and this this new guy in his life. This guy says that Elio reminds him of his son, and they talk about fathers a lot. And it, it kind of answers why we open with Samuel and why we spend so much time with Samuel because yeah. Elio spends so much time talking about that close relationship. That he's continued having with his father and how that has affected his life so Mm. it kind of yeah it suddenly makes sense getting to this point why we spent so much time with Samuel to begin with yeah it does sort of you you become aware of actually how that chapter at the beginning had sort of laid the groundwork yeah I think once you're through it and you get onto these later chapters it makes obviously much more narrative sense yeah Mm. um but there's a lot yeah a lot about fathers and sons and babies and towel drying and that was such a like fanfic it wasn't it I came across I was like I feel like I read so much in fanfic about people toweling each other so much like and I was like you know what great good I'm glad that that's in it (laughs) yeah that's exactly what it is Elio says I felt like a toddler being washed and dried by his parent which also took me back to my very earliest childhood when my father would shower me in his arms and I'm like yeah yeah that's basically just that's fan service isn't it you can say it's about fathers and sons but you're just (laughs) you've just been reading some fanfic we have this sort of memorable moment in this section an interesting plot point where Elio discovers this musical score from Leon to Adrian and he decides to kind of investigate and he wants to find out who the identity of Leon is and Leon's relationship to Michelle's father and there's a very sort of repetitive nature of kind of time and it it talks about all these things in this section and that's I kind of liked the bit about the musical score actually I don't know if anyone else I thought it was again more so you're talking about the kind of Samuel thing and then coming back to this one I enjoyed the musical score bit just as a kind of like 
a nice little subplot. But then yeah. when it came to, because it's all about hiding, yeah. it's all about uh, hiding messages within musical yeah, scores, absolutely. and they're trying to find out who Michelle's father was was wanting to speak to through this musical score, mm. and because Elio's a musician, he's trying to kind of figure it out. But that to me was caught was made so much more meaningful in. Mm. Oliver's chapter yeah and then that was made more um significant mm. in terms of the original book yeah, yeah. and and the, all the kind of musical stuff that's in that and about how music is used as a kind of trans to transport between different times and different feelings and things yeah like that. absolutely and kind of repetitive nature of how mm. you know what Michelle talks about how the fate that's been dealt to your parents is the same fate that was dealt to your grandparents and everyone is kind of going through the same thing and the same feelings and the same experiences. Mm. And I also just wanted to flag this one bit. I can't quite remember now. I wish I'd written the context of before it, but it's near the end and Elio talks. I can't remember what it is now, but he basically says, um, if anyone can remember the context of this, please let me know. But he says, it occurred to me that there was only one person on this planet that I'd like to have my eyes shut by. And he, I hoped without saying a word to me for years would cross the globe to place his palm upon my eyes as I would place mine on his just makes me want to die (laughs) that reminded me of one of my favorite bits in the call me by your name Mm. where he says that the bit where he says that if Oliver died the only thing he would have left was his heart and his shirt and then he says and then at the end he says to Oliver that he he's the only person he would want to see when uh, he would want to know when he died yeah it just oh, yeah, it's yeah. a deliberate echo isn't Kills it you're me. getting these kind of yeah I wish I'd reread the first book close to reading this actually I really should have done because I bet there's so many tiny echoes like yeah. that, that I feel just, like I've read it so many times I know <laughs> it's just like oh I remember that bit distinctly <laughs> should we move on to the Oliver section yeah that's is it Capriccio don't know that's what I'm saying. It's music that is largely free and form and lively slash intense, which suits this section again. So third section, we're introduced to Oliver, who's a New England college professor. He's at his, I guess, his leaving party. He's about to wrap up um, his job. He's having this house party and he's invited two almost strangers to this leaving do, Erica and Paul. I think he does yoga with Erica and Paul is some guy that he sees in the hallway at work. So we get Oliver's perspective for the first time. It's kind of Call Me By Your Name was from Elio's perspective. And yeah, while Elio is trying to sort of find Oliver maybe in Michelle a bit, uh, make really kind of meaningful connections, it feels like Oliver is trying to sort of seek a moment of kind of lust and of escape a bit more. Claire, you said this was your favourite section, so tell us a bit about why. This section just made me want to weep. Like every second of it, it's so... It's so densely packed. This is, every section is kind of shorter than the section before. So mm-hmm. this is kind of a very short snapshot um, yeah, of just a, a moment at a party, basically. But when I read, when I read the, the first book, mm. I, I always had, Oliver intrigued me, but he, he felt more to me like a cipher for Elio yeah. Yeah. and for Elio's self-discovery and sure, completely. Elio like the, the romance was obviously important and I believed in their mm. romance and their connection as it continued through time but Elio was the was the kind of important one mm. but in the film because of Army Hammer's performance which mm. I think is extremely underrated when mm. people talk about the film absolutely I, agreed he's so he made me like absolutely ache for Oliver mm. because his performance is so subtle and yeah. it's only when you've after you've watched the film for perhaps the second time that you start to realize 
because about halfway through there's there's this shot where Elio's behind him and he's at the yeah. at the pool and yeah, you see exactly his face mean, yeah. when he's not looking at Elio yeah. but thinking about Elio and listening to him for the first time and it's just the the sadness and the kind of the regret and the and the hope and all of these things that are in his face in this very subtle moment and that to me just convinced me I was like right yeah Oliver is actually this character that has also got this rich journey yeah you realize how much pain he's in and like exactly yeah you never I think you're right the film really you get that sense that like in some ways the turmoil that Oliver is going through is greater than a lot of the turmoil that even Elio's going through completely and I think that's like obviously in the in the because the first book is written from Elio's perspective you don't get to experience so much of that kind of how much Oliver is probably holding back Mm. what he's sort of having to repress and just not be as visible yeah you know absolutely with and I think that you're completely right in the film is that there are those real subtleties in things that Army Hammer does that you can see that actually there Mm -hmm. is like such an internal conflict that he's Mm. having to he's really having to hold back and be as sort of emotive or as just not be as he wants to be and I think it's just I think you're right it is a really underrated performance I think Mm. yeah definitely and I think that that reading this section brought me back to that what I loved about that performance and and how and that turmoil and brought that turmoil Mm. to the surface but again because it's written so well that it's and, and kind of structured so well just in this short chapter that at the beginning you think it's very light and he's just inviting these two people Mm, that he has mm, a crush mm. on to this party and it's fun and it's nice but then but then gradually this kind of turmoil comes to the surface again and you and again you you start feeling filling in the gaps and thinking about all the times that he's repressed this turmoil in other situations yeah Yeah, absolutely and how often he lets it come to the surface and yeah. it, it, it kind of gets to the point after after the party's over and the two people that he is attracted to go away and he's kind of fantasizing about them being in his bed mm. with him. and it's so vivid but it's he's kind of left himself and he allows him a moment yeah. himself a moment to sit in this now kind of empty apartment that they're yeah. going to move out of and he allows himself to think about Elio, who mm. he's been reminded of because the guy that he fancied was mm. playing the back piece that yeah. Elio plays, which is the moment where the, yeah. the musical score section came back to me yeah. and I was just like, oh my God. But it's just pain mm. and the regret that comes across in in the prose is so palpable. Mm. And, it's, and the fact that this is at, right at the end of the book as well, mm. Is, is just even more sad to me. Like, it, I just love this section so I much. I think, yeah, you're so, so right. It was that feeling of, like... With Elio, I felt like when he was... Like, he was building kind of meaningful connections with other people and he he liked to revisit his memories of Oliver and he thought about them often and there were these little vigils and they, you know, he really treasures those memories and thinks about them often. But Oliver just felt like so much more pained. Like, like that he, like you say, that he was almost not allowing himself, like he'd allow himself a moment to think about Elio because he couldn't think about it 
too much too often but it's like dishing it out yeah. in really small amounts because yeah. you can't handle the full weight yeah. of actually how yeah. it feels so it's having to like you know I'll inch it out yeah. I'll do a little bit and yeah. then that'll be it's it. like it's fantasizing and fucking around and maybe doing something you know far less meaningful with these two people but then these two people also have like Erica and Paul have these elements that again kind of echo a little bit back to different aspects of Elio and it feels like that that piece when Paul starts playing the piano just opens the floodgates for Which him I, and I, I felt that, I mean, I've just looked and it's only 40 pages mm. this section mm. such a small section and I think that it's just really interesting to sort of think about how it does sort of flesh out Oliver's side of the story a little so more. nice to hear his voice yeah it? it is yeah. and I think it just gives you like a, a complete perspective shift because you have always seen things from from Elio's point of view and it's interesting that you know like I said I, I sort of often thought think more about what Elio's life is like after he's had this encounter with Oliver yeah but it's also actually okay well what, what's Oliver's life like in comparison because mm. there is that age difference like we've talked about but it's the fact that actually maybe Elio has more freedom and, and, yeah. and has more time yeah. to build himself yeah. as a as a person and, and shape his life whereas Oliver you know because there is that distance perhaps his act, his trajectory is already mapped out you know like yeah. he's yeah. going back he's, his life's on a, on a straight and narrow yeah, in yeah. a way absolutely um, whereas he has and as well I think because when the when they get older the age difference doesn't matter as no, much it it closes, isn't significant yeah. yeah so but you do that does make it more clear i think what you're saying that yeah. it, it isn't about the age difference no. really it's about the fact that oliver has had his life mapped out for him almost yeah. almost like a kind of you know like a regency novel or something yeah. where yeah. the woman is like yeah 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 is, is like her fate is clear yeah and, but the man is like kind of doing whatever he wants or whatever it's like very gendered but yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it kind of reminded me of that yeah, and, completely. and it was it was only here really that i was that i was kind of thinking about yeah what you were saying about their their different paths and, and yeah. how it's a bit more unexpected yeah and we all thought that elio was the one that was kind of left behind at the end of that book and at the end of the film and how oliver's getting married and he's kind of sorted and he'll live his life being married and elio's been you know elio didn't realize these things and is kind of left behind but actually oliver's very much the one who seems quite trapped and kind of constantly reminded about this unfulfilled life as you were saying like music plays a really big part in this talks a lot about music and it reminding you of kind of being the sound of our regrets put to a cadence that stirs the illusion of pleasure and hope it's the surest reminder that we're here for a very short while and that we've neglected or cheated or worse yet failed to live our lives music is the unfulfilled life that it's, word like ugh. unfulfilled is yeah. so potent in this section I it guess. really is it, like it's it's even when he's talking about like moving to the different houses with his with his family and like it's sitting at the end in the empty house with yeah. only like four chairs that are going to go to the next owner <laughs> it just feels like it's just that nothingness is, isn't it is, that empty yeah. Yeah. shell kind of thing is so appropriate you know like he's smoking somebody else's cigarettes that they've left at the party and he's yeah. kind of almost got nothing of his own and it's just oh god absolutely heartbreaking it's too um, much it's, it's too maybe much. worth mentioning as well about how this connects with that begins to connect them with the storyline of the timeline of Call Me By Your Name mm. and how he mentions when he's kind of thinking about Elio he mentions that um he wanted yeah. to, to kind of confess to yeah. his feelings to Elio and he knew that Elio did as well and he almost did 
five years ago when he came yeah. to see him and that's the first time that they kind of when Elio drops in on his yeah. lecture so you can see here how the timelines are kind of feeding into yeah. each other which yeah. I also really liked because then I kind of realized that it's not so much a sequel as yeah. a kind of parallel yeah. book absolutely <laughs> and like you know yeah you almost assume that these segments might even take place at the same time and then you realise yeah. that they don't and we're moving backwards and forwards well, and kind we of were, all over the place. Yeah, when we were before we started the recording, we were talking about it, weren't we, in terms of like actually if you mapped out a timeline and tried to slot it in alongside the first book, actually yeah. where would... The sections wouldn't be... Se- yeah, like, they it wouldn't, wouldn't run in this sequence No, they would be, it would be over mm. that. And yeah, I think Samuel has died by yeah. this part and Miranda's living in his house with yeah. their son, who's called Oliver, which we'll move on to. But yeah, I think this might be my favourite section as well. I think a lot of those moments that he spent, especially after hearing the music, just thinking about being alone and strangers who don't understand him and don't understand Elio and don't understand the relationship and it just was really painful. It just does so much with so little. Yeah. Like like you say, yeah. Claire, because it like this first chapter's so big and then the second mm. like because it's going down incrementally. It's like mm. it's really interesting to think that across that forty pages there's just so much to unpack. Yeah. About And it's you know, got that scent that real palpable sense of time slipping away and yeah. the yeah. slipping away and, yeah. and just that's the thing you're kind of hurrying through and going there's no time for them well, to be exactly together they've got like 40 pages left when what I'm, are you doing well I've just sort of flicked to the end of to the, yeah. to where the final chapter is and I remember getting to the end of the section with Oliver and just being like oh god there's only like no, 10 I think I think by the there. time we got to this section <laughs> oh, by the time we got to this section with Oliver I had almost come to the conclusion and accepted that we weren't going to get them together at all yeah i just thought yeah, he's such a shit we're going to get to the end and then never <laughs> that it won't have happened like this but is going to be a book twist. yeah in which they spend all their time thinking about one another but it was it. completely plausible that they yeah. they wouldn't oh, yeah. yeah i was like we're gonna get to the end but they won't have fucking seen each other but we did get a bit so we've got this final tiny section I wish I hadn't set myself up to pronounce the beginning, the, pronounce the names of all these De things, Capo. but De Capo, which is from the beginning. So finally, Oliver and Elio are together. We presume sometime later, because they say despite two decades, we were not a day older than the two young men we'd been so long ago under the same roof. Did you expect them to be reunited? Did you think, like, maybe no, they won't? No, I, I kind of went to the same... I came to the same conclusion as, as you that we weren't going to get them together. And I was like, you know what? Fine. That's yeah, fine. that's exactly what because I was Because that's like. kind of what I... That's kind of, in a way, what I wanted. That's kind of way the life is sometimes. About, about them never finding each other again. Yeah, you spend the whole book have, talking about unfulfilled lives. E- yeah, exactly. And how they found each other through their memories rather mm. than rather than finding each other physically. Yeah. But this section did... It kind of did it as well as I thought that it, mm-hmm. it that, that it could have done for yeah. me, which is that it was very brief and it was and it didn't try to it didn't make it like they were instantly like in love and having passionate sex yeah, yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. It was like oh, actually, it was kind of weird, and we were a bit like we didn't really know how to act with each other, and yeah, I just thought yeah. that was great. I like, like the awkward because that is yeah. how you would be. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And also, I really like how again going back to the original timeline of Call Me by Your Name. This book kind of ends probably only a few days after that book ends mm, because yeah. it, it kind of picks up with Oliver visiting the house yeah, as he yeah. does in the last few pages. Yeah. But then has it that um, Oliver stays at the yeah. house and mm. it's just like, it's kind of like a happy ending version of the other ending. Yeah, yeah. it is. But, it is. But not in a in a way that I didn't think was corny. I just, I thought mm. that it was like a, a more real 
Yeah. It was a happy ending, but it was but it was a realistic happy ending. Yeah, yeah. completely. I'm really glad that it didn't go on for too for, for just a, a really yeah. big size. I don't think, like we said, like if we'd had a whole book of them being together and things being wonderful, or whatever, I think it just wouldn't have. Yeah, and been. I think that it'd I, be like, what's the point? Of yeah, that? it would have like, just been fan fiction, and I can just yeah. read plenty of that myself. But I mean, I personally, <laughs> like you, I'm glad this section was short. I kind of didn't really need it actually. Um, yeah, especially because we do spend so much time thinking about memory and unfulfilled lives, and there's almost like this psychic connection between them where they know that even though they're not speaking to one another and they haven't said you know haven't spoken to each other in ages or written each other a letter like they kind of intuitively know one another is there somewhere and that they've got that connection Mm -hmm. and that they'd be able to find each other at any point but I I didn't feel like I needed this section so much personally um I think there's some really nice kind of passages in it there's one really interesting quote that I think for me just like we've been talking about about time and about memory and nostalgia and all of those things that kind of run throughout it and there's the quote that's I think probably two or three pages from the end but it's we're not going to feed off the past are we he asked in his usual laconic manner that told me I had strayed into territory that had held no promise for the future he could have been more right i've had to sever many ties and burn bridges i know i'll pay dearly for but i don't want to look back i've had mccall and you've had michelle just as i've loved a young elio and a younger you a younger me they've made us who we are let's not pretend they never existed but i don't want to look back and that's such an interesting passage i think for me when i think about kind of whether i wanted a sequel to the original book whether i want a sequel to the original film and i think it's almost like this sort of strange acknowledgement about i'm really pleased that they came together at the end because i think that i just would have been deeply frustrated Mm. although i had resided myself to sort of just thinking Mm. actually it's going to be these three separate just kind of looks at at Mm. key characters but there is just so much in that quote about what we accomplish by looking back and whether we should look back and what we get out what you know what the benefit of being nostalgic and harking after mm. something you've lost what the outcome of that is and I think but when I read that I was like actually that's how I sort of feel about kind of the book as a whole actually is that I really I think because of the impact that it's had on, on us and has obviously had had on, on you Claire I don't know it just felt like such a really interesting like I was like oh yeah actually that's sort of very interesting to kind of just stick that at the end even, mm. it, so even the characters sort of acknowledge actually the sort of the difficulty and the kind of and it's it, and for and you know a book that spends all its time looking back they've suddenly they've decided now that they don't want to do that that's why it felt anymore. funny to me is that you've yeah. got this is on like page 100 uh, 257 sorry of the book that I've got and you kind of get this big chunk and you're like oh right this is okay. a whole lot li- these are two whole <laughs> lives that have been dictated by looking back yeah. but no I do know what you mean there's a couple of there were two passages I really liked this one with Elio talking well I think what it what it meant for me is that um thinking back to like the conversations between Miranda and Samuel and kind of with Elio and Michelle like I feel like Asman, like when he writes about Elio and Oliver together and when they're thinking about each other or speaking to each other, it just feels so much more organic. It just feels yeah. like he knows what he's doing and he just yeah. naturally falls into a rhythm when he's writing about them. It just feels so natural really compared mean. to the other relationships yeah. in the book. Like, not that they're written, they're not written badly. It's just, I don't know, there's just something so natural with yeah. these characters yeah. together. They almost, they do almost have a life of their own because the writing just seems to flow so nicely there's a bit where elio talks about oliver and he says 
Oliver had always been of my blood and had always lived in this house, been of this house and of our lives. He was already here before coming to us, before my birth, before they set down the first stone generations ago, and our years in between then and now were but a hiccup in that long itinerary called time. So much time, so many years, and all the lives we'd touched and left behind, as though they could just as easily have never happened, though happen they did. Time, as he'd said before we hugged and went to sleep so late that night, time is always the price we pay for the unlived life. It's just like these amazing sections. Yeah, so good. Just fucking amazing. And and that's like that's the thing that I find so convincing about yeah. about his writing is that it's it's this these ideas about time and obviously like kind of Asimov's like a, a Proust scholar, so like has has a lot of like kind of takes a lot of ideas from Proust and mm. and all these like familiar ideas about time, but yeah. but ties them up with real visceral relationships, like yeah. in a way that I just can't. I just have never read like that before. It's, nice. it's just incredible. It is incredible. I do really love it. But it did highlight to me that, as I say, like the the other relationships in the book are not just because they're not Elio and Oliver, but they just didn't <laughs> quite land in the same way, like even the, in the way that they were, I don't know, written or I don't know what it is, but like there's the kind of natural ambiguity between Elio and Oliver and the way like yeah. a lot of what happens is almost unsaid on the page i also think that this um reiterates something that i really love about their relationship in the first book which is the idea of them well it's in the title the idea Mm. of them being the same person yeah yeah yeah. and tied together not just through their love for each other or their desire for each other but in them being the same and then being man and woman yeah yeah yeah. then being this kind of entity that is ev- that is everything mm-hmm, yeah. and it's like almost like metaphysical it whereas is, yeah. like and and he describes that really exceptionally well but that's what I was meaning as well about the other relationships feeling too intellectual because yeah, they've yeah. not got this kind of supernatural metaphysical mm. kind of sense there's there's one like line in my favorite line in the whole of Call Me By Your Name is where he it's after they have sex for the first time and Elia says we saw the stars you and I and um, that is given to us only once mm, and yeah. it's like that kind of idea of, of two people being like almost not people they're yeah. just like ideas yeah, yeah. flowing in the air mm. but they're the same idea and yeah. Yeah. this section I was kind of glad that all that kind of metaphysical stuff was brought back in this end mm, section to mm. kind of reiterate that yeah. as well as their like kind of their conversation which as you say feels very organic and, yeah yeah and it, it was just nice to have both of those elements yeah, back I think you're so bit. right yeah absolutely um any final thoughts I don't know my final thoughts are for me reading the book again and kind of making note of passages and things that really struck me um like I came out feeling more positive generally about the book than I did maybe the first time I think I was I think I just found the whole thing a bit baffling the first time. It wasn't that I felt really negatively towards it. I just wasn't sure exactly what I'd got out of it the first time. Mm. I don't know whether I was mm. just like almost reading it frantically too quickly or I don't know what it was. I feel like I got a lot, a lot more of that out of it on a second reading and on like, like chatting to you guys. I can see the strengths in it. I think there are a few things that don't quite work for me, particularly maybe with the other relationships. Maybe, I'm not sure, but... 
I think generally it's justified its existence. I think so. I don't think anyone will gain anything. I don't know. I've got a colleague at work who's just, who'd recently borrowed the second book from me. And she said that, you know, there was nothing wrong with the second book, but she didn't feel like it added anything particularly for her. Like it didn't, she did, she could have read the first book and that could have been it. And it's not necessary reading. And Mm. I kind of agree with that. It's nice to revisit and see where their lives went and have all of these kind of little vigils, but it's not like the most necessary read. No, and I think that like I'd really measured my expectations for it. I think because I was so apprehensive and I think on my reading of that, I think I was just quite overwhelmed and in a bit of a state of disbelief that like, oh, I'm actually getting to read this and it's a follow on. And I think Mm. that I think that the for me, I suppose the thing that you gain from this book is like we said, is within that section about Oliver. Yeah, it was really nice Mm. to have that perspective shift Mm. and actually think about, well, okay, you've got an entire book that's written from the perspective of Avelio recounting that particular summer in their relationship but actually thinking about thinking about Oliver and the and sort of the lifelong impact that their relationship would have had on him mm, and, yeah. and the trajectory of his life it's I probably think. the most rewarding bit. yeah I yeah. think so and I think yeah. it's, like we were saying I think that it, that's 40 pages and the, the, the kind of things the themes and ideas you get within that section are just like there's so much you could just interrogate yeah. about that particular section so I think that I wasn't I definitely wasn't let down by it because I think I just really measured my expectation yeah, yeah. in apprehension because I was like actually if this doesn't really reach the heights of my first reading of Call Me By Your Name or my first we'll just pretend it didn't happen we'll just pretend it didn't happen was our agreement I was fully prepared to be like no that no it doesn't exist in the bin off it goes yeah, but I, I kind of, I kind of, I, I agree with you guys. Like, it, I don't think you need to read this, but it was nice to read it. And yeah, I got, that's exactly and I, how it feels. And, and I and I enjoyed it. And we're like, I'd probably read it again. But like, and I also enjoyed my second reading more. But I won't be returning to it like I returned to Call Me By. No, no. no. Um, but it was a nice kind of a, a, a kind of nice addendum, a nice yeah, kind of extra that's thing. That's a good word for it. And yeah. And completely worth it for the Oliver section. Absolutely, and I think yeah. I think my my final thing is that I it just did confound to me that I I just don't want a sequel to the film. I mean, it's a fucking miracle that, that first film did what it did really in terms of interpreting that book um i think it did phenomenally well even no with luca at the helm even with everyone involved who was involved before like it just i'd be so nervous to see a sequel to that and i just don't think it would i don't think they should do it i feel like you'd, <laughs> no. I feel like you'd need a just miracle go- to make it as impactful right. as the first film you just won't i just think they should all go on holiday together they should just go back yeah. to the place i i went I went on holiday to where they filmed Call Me By yeah. like last year and we got a pretty cheap Airbnb. <laughs> we stayed in a nice uh, villa. It was off season. You know, there you can go. go for a few hundred quid. It's exactly. Fine. I'm sure they've got that packed away somewhere. <laughs> Army will get all the it. Instagram story content in. It'd just be so. some lovely content. Well, yeah, haven't they already been back? I yeah, think they, they just... They love like, hanging out. Just hang out, guys. It's fine. You don't need the sequel. Out. Yeah, you don't need the sequel to the film. To It would be such risky business and I don't I don't think they're even considering it at this point I don't think, I don't think they are they keep no, teasing it I think Army kind of like shot I think they were all like because they were all like in love with each other and they were all like <laughs> we'll definitely do it oh let's definitely do it and then and then they've all been like no, let's stop let's doing not. it. <laughs> so, like I said, what are they going to do? Like stick a moustache on Timmy do? and act like he's like 20 years old. The boy still looks 12. You can't yeah. age that. What are you yeah. going to do? Cast someone else? I don't think so. Yeah, right. It'd just be impossible. Like <laughs> maybe, they can't do it. Maybe in like 20 years time when Army's so desperate for an Oscar, they'll just... <laughs> 
Oh, bless him. Poor boy. He'll get the tracksuits out and he'll just be like, yeah, let's do this. Oh my God. I'd almost forgotten about the tracksuits and I'm going to do a very comprehensive Google image of the tracksuits after recording this. A real highlight of the year. Just want to write a note to that tracksuit. Thank you so much for chatting with us. We appreciate it so much. Um, If people want to find you online, where where should they go? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Ms. Claire Biddles. Lovely. And... um, uh, that is where I am and you'll find me tweeting about pop music and uh, people that I fancy mainly that is so on, incredibly on brand for us I think anyone <laughs> who follows this podcast definitely needs to follow Love you because so they just go hand in hand they do just, <laughs> okay thank you so much for... thank you so much I've enjoyed it a lot so we've had some chat and we had a guest on the podcast that was very nice wasn't it, it was very nice um, now is our obsession of the week what is yours it's quite boring okay go on anything goes we've had boring ones before in the past it's brad pitt well do you want to know an extremely big spoiler mine's also it was was when we had so when i've been ill for the past few weeks had various issues because my body is falling apart it's so annoying and swelling up and doing all kinds of things but there was a day when i was sick and i watched true romance and we were just having a really funny conversation about Brad Pitt and True Romance being like a fucking stoner, long-haired stoner, and just looking at photos of him in the 90s at like... Was that like the True Romance like um, premiere or something? Yeah. No, what was it where he was in with... Um, I, I say you you were watching True Romance, and then... Which is a great film. I was like, would you like an additional treat? And then I sent you the picture of him at the True Romance premiere, and he's wearing so like a paisley print shirt and has really long hair. The long hair is a lot. And then it just descended into me finding very specific pictures of him in the 90s with long hair. And then my, my favourite being the picture of him at the interview with a vampire. Oh my God, this, that's premiere, the premiere. Yeah. Which is, and so it's like, we'll share this. So it's Christian Slater and then it's Tom Cruise in a velvet suit. Kirsten Dunst, little Kirsten Dunst. Tiny a, baby Kirsten In a velvet Dunst. dress. That's how old Brad Pitt is. She's yeah. a full-blown adult now. Antonia Banderas, also in a velvet suit. <gasps> and then Brad Pitt wearing a leather jacket and grey trousers. It's just too much. Also, it's this. I can't, that's the Oscars. Yes. Describe so, this. So what you're sh- what you're showing me is a picture I sent to you, which is a picture of Juliet Lewis, Lewis. with cornrows. <laughs> she's also wearing a what looks to be like white, a wedding dress. Like a wedding dress, and she's wearing a long chain of pearls and white gloves. And then she ch- she paired that with cornrows. Fuck me, honestly. And then Brad Pitt just is wearing a suit, which has a weird tie thing. His teeth really look weird. weird in that picture as well. He's but, got really white um, teeth. He's quite sweaty. So I, I sent you... He's probably stoned. I sent you that picture, <laughs> contextless, and was like, this is hilarious. And then I discovered about two days later that that's the Oscars that year. Oh, yeah. What, and I was like, I can't believe these, oh this my, is what these people went through. I've just remembered Oscars. something that I can't actually mention <laughs> on... But uh, I just, I'm, I'm just going back through our chat and it really is just me sending you just pictures, pictures of Brad, of Brad Pitt. Pitt. What was I watching that day? I think I was watching something Brad Pitty. It wasn't Oceans, was it? Um, no. What did I end up watching? This is going to be make for great podcasting. This is great podcasting. Um, but basically, we've just spent a lot of time thinking about that and having really in-depth, inappropriate conversations that I'm not going to uh, repeat here. Um, so you'll just have to guess about various Brad Pitt related things that are just really inappropriate. So I think my main two takeaways from 2019, apart from it being a complete shithole, is um, Epstein didn't kill himself and... 
Brad Pitt saying delicious. I just want to spend so much of my time thinking about watching Paul Thomas Anderson films with Brad Pitt. I when I watched The Master. Oh my god, that was it. We did that tweet. Yeah, Yeah, that disgusting tweet. Really inappropriate. And then when I was watching The Master the day, I was just thinking like, I wonder what Brad Pitt thinks about The Master. I just love a running commentary from Brad Pitt right now about this film. Um, the other thing that draw voice. Don't. Um, so that's one of my obsessions of the week is is Brad Pitt as well as yours. The other one is Shia LaBeouf. Oh yes, yeah, in a, yeah. yeah. In a to... way that I just cannot. I mean, I think I've spent spent some time on the I podcast so. talking before. So I said that I went to see Peanut Butter Falcon, and he's just so dirty in that film because he plays like a fisherman. That's your like specific kink, isn't it? Like a dirty Shia LaBeouf. I just can't cope with him. I spent so many... So when I was doing my preparation for this podcast, I lost a good half an hour of watching just Shire interviews because he's doing the press circuit at the moment. Of course, because, so you're getting a, getting a lot out um, of that. I am, because he's uh, got Honey Boy, his film, coming out uh, in December, I believe. So he's just doing loads of press and just talking about his arrests, plural, and just his life. And then he was on Ellen and I was watching that. And I just, he is so, I just love him. I just love him. I love the fact that I still, in 2019, <laughs> I spent so much time thinking about Louis Bloody Stevens. even Stevens. Yeah, Bloody even little even What's Stevens. What's Stevens up to? No one cares. <laughs> no one cares. Um, Stanley Yelnuts. I just <laughs> I think that when I'd get to the age I am now and still think that Shia LaBeouf was I didn't best. think I'd get to the age I am now and still be reacting like this to anything but clearly that's just good to know so Brad Pitt Shia LaBeouf 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 would recommend uh, so that's us done you can find us online Twitter we're at the thirst soundcloud.com forward slash the thirst pod and make sure you look for us on other pod streaming apps as well you can subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts by searching the thirst Instagram we're at the thirst pod our blog where we'll be sharing links and other necessary pieces of information is the thirstpod.wordpress.com and you can also find us on Facebook by searching for the thirst pod too uh, goodbye bye <laughs> <laughs>